Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today we're pleased to speak to Brother Abdullah Rabat. How are you, Akhi Abdullah? It's good to have you back again on Blogging Theology. Same here. How are you, do- how are you doing? Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Brother Abdullah Rabat is a student of Hadith whose interests primarily revolve around the application of Hadith theory and the assortment of data derived from Isnads. He also has an interest in studying Shi'ism and its origins and is formerly a student of the Hanbali school of Fiqh. Abdullah has authored several works on Hadith and Shi'ism and I've provided a link to them in the description box below. Abdullah's efforts are ongoing as he continues to work on several projects that will come to light in the future, inshallah. Fatima, عنها, the daughter of the Prophet وسلم, is beloved to us all. And honoring her entails honoring the Prophet Likewise, the inverse is also true. Dishonoring her is also entails dishonoring the Prophet And it is a popularly held stance among the Twelver Shia that Fatima anha died from injuries sustained through an attack on her house by a number of the Sahaba. In other words, Fatima anha was killed, according to the Twelver Shia. And this is a very serious accusation. And if this is true then the perpetrators of this crime are from among the worst of this ummah. If false, however, then this is one of the gravest slanders one could ever issue against a Muslim. Brother Abdullah, mashallah, has written a detailed 285-page book on this event entitled The Passion of Fatima, which which you may access in the link that we provided in the description box below to Brother Abdullah's works. And we're very fortunate to have Brother Abdullah here today to summarize and relay the most critical elements of his book to us. So without further ado, Brother Abdullah, the floor is all yours. First of all, uh, thank you, uh, Bassam, for that uh, gracious introduction. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wassalamu ala rasulillah, amma ba'd. So this is a topic that I've had uh, quite a bit of interest in uh, for several years, actually. It's persisted for several years. Um, prior to that, I had interest in, in uh, Twelver Shiism as a whole, you know, the origins of Twelver Shiism, the, the historiography and historicity of Twelver Shiism and whatnot. And uh, this narrative is, is a narrative that stood out among many narratives upheld by the school. And uh, there was yet uh, a de- yet to be a detailed, you know, analysis of it, you know, from a proper historical perspective that transcended, you know, some of the downfalls associated with polemics and online debates and whatnot. So what happened with this narrative is around 2018, I started doing research about it, um, you know, from a Hadith analysis perspective. 
at the time I had limited access to to Twelver sources, to Zaidi sources, to Martezili, uh, early Martezili sources, even some uh, Ibadli sources, right? Um, which would be proved to be useful down the line. So I published a brief uh, analysis. It's it's uh, very limited in its scope, but I, but I still do believe it did the job at the time, and I, I wasn't fully content with my results. Uh, I felt like more could be, uh, you know, demonstrated and more can be expounded uh, to further, you know, delve into the depths of this narrative and its downfalls. And so I reopened that project around in around 2020, right? And I worked on it, the, the book, for like a year and a half, year, year and a half, two years. And the end result was uh, the book that I published recently, which I titled The Passion of Fatima. And uh, for those not familiar, you know, this this is a term uh, often used in, in Christianity and New Testament studies. It's it's like a story that ends with the main character dying at the end. It's a, it's a literary genre. So I wrote this book, uh, a detailed analysis of this uh, 12 narrative, its main sources. We analyzed the snods, the problems, the issues in so much detail, right? It, it's like an overkill in terms of, of such a dubious narrative, but uh, I, I nonetheless believe that there was a, a benefit in, in diving into that for that much time and, and, and devoting that much effort to it. So nonetheless, I contrast this book with today's presentation, right? So I don't wish to jump into the technical details too much. I don't want to overburden the listeners. Um, you know, with all the isnad diagrams and all the jarh tadil, the criticism directed at transmitters, um, you know, the detailed analysis of texts and the background uh, context needed. So there's a lot to be covered when you want to refute a narrative like this. So if anyone's interested in the pulp and the and the details and and all that stuff, feel free to read the book. Uh, I would strongly recommend that. With that being said. Uh, what are we going to do in today's presentation? Well, in today's presentation, my main objective is, one, uh, to help the listener understand the downfalls of the polemicization of history and other other methodological notes related to that. So what, do I, what I mean by that is, you know, you have Sunnis on one end and you have 12 Shi'is on the other end. Often in these debates that take place, whether online or in person, um, history ends up being polemicized, right? It's an issue of polemics. Each side has a, has a position, you know, they're on one end of the spectrum or when one end of the debate, and they start trying to prove and substantiate their narratives. And, and such a polemicization of history comes at a price, right? And it has a variety of downfalls. So we're going to address some of that. And we're going to talk about some methodological notes uh, and issues associated with many of these debates. The second objective of mine is to help the reader um, conceptualize forgeries better and have a better understanding of the potential impacts forgeries may have in crafting alternative historical narratives, right? So we you have Sunnis. You have Sunnis, who otherwise I refer to as mainstream Muslims, and you have uh, Zaydi Shiris, who, who are on the spectrum between Sunnis and, uh, you know, extreme Shiism. And then you have Twelver Shiism, maybe a bit, it's farther down the spectrum, right, on the more extreme end of, of the spectrum. You have Ibadis, 
right, who are classically associated with uh, the Khawarij, and you have a big spectrum in between, right? In the Mu'tazila, they fall on a on different points of the spectrum depending on their uh, leanings and whatnot. So these forgeries, uh, obviously, a, a lot of these schools, their perception of theology and and their religion and their 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 uh, doctrines often stem from these divergent narratives that exist in in different sources right it's not that it's not necessarily the case that oh we we all have the same sources and we're just uh deferring the interpretation no right the issue more or less stems from different narratives stemming from different sources that result and different doctrines and different theologies and whatnot and so we'll we'll talk about you know these types of forgeries and the potential impacts they could have on on crafting historical narratives and ultimately uh, divergent the theologies and of course in that context we will be zooming in on this narrative about fatima uh as a case study to to further you know contextualize these discussions and uh we'll we'll uh dabble a little bit with some of the themes of forgery that are exhibited in this narrative and some of its main sources and their downfalls. So before we talk about, you know, the details and the controversies and and what happened and what didn't happen and you, you we try to refute or we try to establish something, before we do any of that, let's take a step back and uh, address some methodological points that are very crucial to these discussions. So the first point, and I find this to be very important, is what I refer to as a precursory imbalance. What do I mean by that? Well, when a Sunni uh, Muslim or a mainstream Muslim sits down with a 12er Shi'i to discuss these matters, before we delve into the details and someone starts citing sources and someone starts responding to that source and assessing this now before all that happens the question that needs to be asked is when when such an encounter happens are we both operating from a common ground methodologically speaking are we both operating from an acceptable framework you know that could function as, as a foundation for our historical inquiry. And what I mean by this is that the 12er Shi'i position by nature, by definition, is partial, right? It is partial and it is extremely biased, you know, in favor of one party at the expense of another. So if you were to look at history as, let's say, a conflict between Muawiyah and Ali, that's very reductionist, right? That that does not capture uh, the reality of the situation that was existent at the time, right? It's, it's not just a dichotomy. There is a third party that was indifferent uh, to either, either parties. But nonetheless, if we're going to reduce the, the history at the time to a conflict between Muawiyah and Ali, well, in such a setting, the Shi'i position, by definition, is partial to Adi, and it's extremely biased in favor of Adi. That's what Shi'i means. You know, Shia it means party, or and the Shi'i is a partisan of Ali, right? So, when you sit with a, a Shi'i to discuss history, 
you are talking to someone who off the bat from the start comes to the table with the assumption that Ali is not only good or a great person, but he is the best and he is the most correct and he is supreme and he is infallible, right? The 12 er Shi'i narrative, unlike other more moderate and more mild Shi'i schools that existed throughout history, the 12 er Shi'i narrative holds that Ali is infallible. He doesn't even make mistakes. So what does that mean? That means that such a person's reading of history is, is automatically going to be uh, heavily weighed in favor of this bias, even if the person, you know, will will say that they're they're going to admit their biases your your core belief and doctrine revolves around ali being supreme infallible and because of that his opponents are going to be the worst of people right there's little room for nuance when you frame your worldview in that way right if someone is supreme infallible divinely ordained uh miraculous supreme in his knowledge in fact you know you know all that stuff then obviously the other party that fights him and opposes him is going to be extremely wicked extremely disbelieving right and so it's a very extreme and and biased way of everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Looking at history. Now, contrast this with the Sunni position on history. The Sunni approach, by definition is accommodative of nuance. And I, I, I don't say nuanced per se, I say it's accommodative of nuance. Uh, obviously, as a, a mainstream Muslim, I also do believe is nuanced, but for all intents and purposes in these discussions, I say that the Sunni position accommodates nuance and it's accommodative of nuance because it's impartial, right? Uh, Sunni Islam, mainstream Islam, does not choose sides, you know, Sunnis don't say, well, we're, we're Muawiyah's camp. That certainly is not the case. We don't say we are 100% Ali's camp. We are open to admitting that, you know, one party may have transgressed an, an, against another and that maybe some things Ali did could have been improved and maybe facilitated this, con this conflict longer than it should have, right? So our position with respect to history, because it's a, that of a neutral stance, we are able to be to to accommodate nuance with respect to all parties involved right and we are able to document history you know correctly or at least uh, impartially with with, uh, with a high degree of objectivity contrast this with a shiri who comes to the table believing that ali is a divinely ordained infallible being okay someone with such a belief is unable to concede that ali could have made a mistake He's unable to concede uh, that Ali not necessarily made a mistake, but had maybe some poor judgment in some instances of the conflict, 
right? So the, the historical discussion, you know, from the off the bat, we are not on the same level, right? And um, it's similar to this is is how is the significance of these issues? So Sunni theology uh, or mainstream Islam, our theology and our doctrines and our understanding of Islam primarily stems from the period, which is the Prophet's life, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, right? These later historical events to us, they're very secondary or tertiary even, right? Our worldview is not rooted in, in later historical controversies that happened after the Prophet's death. Now, contrast this with uh, the, the Twelver Shi'i worldview. Right, and I emphasize Twelver because I don't like to lump all of the Shia under one category because it's a spectrum that can accommodate nuance on some ends, where you know on the, on the milder end of the spectrum. So, with the Twelver uh, Shi'i world narrative, Allahumma salli Nabi, I forgot my thought. Um, okay, the the beliefs are rooted in these controversies. Right, Ali is not just a good historical figure, uh, you know, or a benevolent Sahabi. No, no, no. Ali is the divinely uh, anointed successor of Prophet Muhammad وسلم, whose task is to uh, clarify the teachings of the Prophet. He's infallible. He receives divine inspiration, right? So they attach a significance to these events that the Sunni does not attach, right? For, for a Sunni Muslim, however things play out, they're not as consequential to our worldview as they are to a Shia, right? And for this reason, you see that the Shia, they're very invested in, in these discussions, um, in, in their sermons and their, their clerics talk about these events, right? They have annual commemorations of a lot of these different events. While, while a Sunni layman, understandably, might be entirely oblivious to them, right? And obviously, we don't encourage people to be ignorant in history, but it's just to we are contrasting two different realities. So when we sit at a table, we are coming from entirely different perspectives and we should not assume that we're on the same ground and we're just going to debate a few traditions and we're going to authenticate or weaken. It's not that simple. You know, there's a lot more to it. And, and, and in these discussions, to highlight my point, you will find Shiris often, uh, the Shiri polemicists, uh, 12 or Shiri polemicists, their frustration with the Sunni narrative is not necessarily about the outline of historical events in our sources, because our historical sources more or less document everything. Yeah. Uh, the events, the controversies, the, the wars, the killing, the who killed who, uh, the, the, bad, the good and the bad, right? Their frustration is with our theological interpretation of these historical events, which is an entirely different issue, right? However, when it comes to historiography, you know, and the historicity, our position is accommodating of nuance, right? We can admit that anyone did mistakes. We're not invested in this. While the Twelver uh, Shia simply cannot, it would constitute disbelief. You know, uh, at least you'd be expelled from excluded from Shiaism, if not Islam, according to some of their, uh, you know, schools, uh, for admitting that Ali made an error. Right or Ali may have uh, uh, lacked judgment in some instances. Right, so 
uh, that's an important, uh, you know, precursor to these discussions. Uh, people jump into the debates, you know, historically, um, not recognizing that the, this imbalance results in a host of odd and problematic behaviors in these discussions, you know, and, and we're, we'll get to that uh, next. So one of the ideas that plagues these discussions, uh, you know, between uh, mainstream Muslims and 12 Shi'is, which is partially a fruit <clears throat> of uh, the earlier point I mentioned, is this idea of the transcendent conspiracy theory. That's my uh, description of it. And what I mean by this is that in, in 12 historiography um, and discourse on a lot of these historical issues, you will you will begin noticing a theme that is embodied in, in, in all, a lot of their claims and their, their outline of what happened, which is that there was this massive theopolitical, theo meaning theological, theopolitical uh, conspiracy to subdue Ahlul Bayt and conceal their rights and their significance, uh, you know, within Islamic theology. And so this, this conspiracy, it transcends politics, and it transcends time. And what I mean by this is that they believe, you will see, like, some of them explicitly say this, some of them imply it and, and just operate with it in the background as like a core assumption. There is this conspiracy that started with Abu Bakr, Umar, and Uthman, Allah be pleased with them. And it continued with the Umayyads, even though they are very different than the Rashidun in, in a variety of ways, you know, administratively, even to an extent theologically, um, but this theory nonetheless persisted, uh, this, sorry, this conspiracy theory persisted with the Umayyad. And then after the demise of the Umayyad, it was upheld by the Abbasids as well, right? This massive conspiracy theory uh, to subdue Ahl Bayt, conceal their rights, uh, to, to uh, undermine Shiism, uh, the truth, which which supposedly is the truth, right, in, in this narrative. And uh, even though the Umayyads and the Abbasids were drastically different, right, even in these uh, controversies historically, you know, the Abbasids often were a little uh, biased in favor of Shiaza, you know, compared to the Umayyads. But nonetheless, this conspiracy theory just lumps them all together uh, as uh, enablers of this uh, conspiracy. And what this conspiracy theory also often entails is that there was a collusion. There was collusion between the government authorities, Umayyads, Abbasids, even some of the Rashidun, and between the Muhaddithin and the scholars to forge Sunnism as a religion of the state and masses and to undermine Shiism and bury, you know, it's, it's, it's a divergent historical narrative. Right, so that's part of this conspiracy theory that you observe in many of these discussions. And one issue with this, among a host of other issues, is that it's it's very circular. So if you notice, a premise to this entire conspiracy theory is that Ahlul Bayt are more significant, and that they have an original status and significance that was then undermined. So this this. Uh, Conspiracy theory is very circular. It presumes a, a 12er Shi'i uh, theology as a starting point, you know, when it comes to Ahlul Bayt. And uh, everything then follows suit. One issue with this conspiracy theory that we'll observe is that 
Shias and Twelvers who, who take this for granted, we see them looking at mainstream Muslim sources through the lens of this conspiracy theory. So they believe that uh, Sunni sources have kernels of truth, right? The full truth was concealed. It was hidden because it was embarrassing to Islam and the, the mainstream, uh, you know, the Umayyads and Abbasids and the Rashidun, the governments and the Muhadithin. So they, they, they hid a lot of truths, right? But there are kernels of truths. There are kernels of truth. There are things that they weren't fully able to conceal, right? And this idea is very dangerous for several reasons, barring the fact that it's baseless. Like when you want to substantiate the case, you know, there's not much evidence for anything like this. It's more of a conspiracy theory. But what they end up doing often because of this idea is that they will go to a Sunni source that has something about these historical controversies and it'll have some tiny controversial element. They take that and they assume, you know, they, they fill the gap. They'll say that there is a gap here. There was something that was removed and that gap is filled by our 12 sources, right? So often what it leads to is it leads to misinterpretation of otherwise benign Sunni traditions, right? They're otherwise benign. Uh, they're not as controversial. They're not really controversial in any sense, or uh, or or they're very minutely controversial. Yet, because of this idea that there was this conspiracy theory that hid hid you know a, a bigger part of this narrative, and there's just this is just a kernel of its truth, it's very easy for you to project twelve sources onto uh, Sunni sources. Right, so you'll see Tariq al-Tabari, Sahih al-Bukhari, Musannaf ibn Abi Shayba, all these like sources that are authored by people from mainstream Islam. You'll see in these discussions with Shi'is, they'll cite a tradition from these sources. It doesn't really support the Shi'i case. Yeah, there there is a, a tiny element of controversy, but the gap is filled, and the interpretation is is influenced by the twelve sources because. The otherwise greater truth was concealed, and this is just a part of that truth. So very circular way of looking at things, and it, it leads to all kinds of yani, uh, problems and misunderstandings and, and misuse of historical sources. Another idea that is, is very related uh, to, to my earlier points is, is what a lot of uh, 12 Shia laymen and even you know students of knowledge and scholars are, are taught and what they teach is that 12er theology and the 12er historical narrative can be proven from Sunni sources. So in a lot of these discussions, you'll notice that uh, 12er uh, Shi'i polemicists, you know, online and in person, they are attempting to cite Sunni sources, mainstream Muslim sources, or, or sources that are perceived to be a Sunni as some upper hand, right? Uh, the 12er uh, layman is taught that we have uh, the upper hand, and not only are our beliefs substantiated in, in our sources, of course, but we can even prove our beliefs from Sunni sources. So this is a very common idea that you'll find, you know, they openly say this on their, on their uh, pulpits, uh, their clerics, their scholars. And uh, what they're further taught is that these truths, so pause that and take, take a step back. They, at, at, on one end, they believe that there was a massive conspiracy theory to conceal the truths, right? But on the other end, they hold that there is enough information in our sources uh, 
pro-Shiri that will substantiate Shiri beliefs. It may or may not be a, a kind of a contradiction. Nonetheless, they're taught that these kernels of truth and these uh, truths that are in our sources that could substantiate 12 birth theology and historiography, they're there, but Sunni scholars conceal them from our layman audiences, right? And this idea is very unhealthy and very inaccurate because we print these books, we distribute our Hadith books, uh, anyone can go buy it, we upload their PDFs online, uh, Hadith books are regularly read in the majalis of, of Riwaya, um, they're taught in universities. The fact that there is widespread ignorance among uh, a certain subset of Sunnis is not really part of some conspiracy. There's just general ignorance. Um, a lot of uh, Sunni laymen barely know anything about the Sahaba. They barely know anything about, uh, you know, the, the names of the, the famous Sahaba, you know, like Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, Abu Darda, right? People that are popular, you know, especially in Damascus, Syria, in our hometown, uh, Bassam. Uh, Abu Darda is like our Sahabi, right? But if you were to ask a Syrian, uh, who, who's uh, we, we often associate him with our city, few people know his name. Right. So th there, so the point is, we do have a general ignorance, but it's just ignorance in Islam. There's a lot of people who are ignorant in fiqh. They're ignorant. In, and it's the scholars duties to, uh, to duty to teach them. Right. And as I said earlier, these events are not as significant uh, to our worldview as it is to Shi'is. Uh, so that's just to dispel this idea that there's some conspiracy to conceal things. You know, there is no such conspiracy. And, uh, you know, what these ideas lead to, similar to my earlier point, it leads to selective readings. Because now uh, the 12ers taught that, listen, we can establish uh, a 12er worldview from Sunni sources. So what do they do? They read Sunni sources looking for those uh, uh, traditions that can substantiate 12er worldviews. And that's obviously a problematic way of reading any text. When you approach a text, looking to prove something right not only will that lead to selective reading right but it will also skew your interpretation right and that's related to to the point i talked about earlier so this is something that really does plague a lot of these discussions that i'm regularly involved in um and and before we delve into the history we need to acknowledge this that there are a host of of unhealthy behaviors and, and practices that take place in these discussions that need to be recognized and called out because they are, they do heavily skew these discussions and and uh, impact them in negative ways and and result in all kinds of fallacies and, and misuse of historical text. One of those behaviors, as an example, that uh, plague these discussions is the idea of source inflation. So you'll find in, in a lot of the, the Shi'i polemical works written on these historical events, a, a, a phenomenon that is intended primarily to deceive a layman uh, a reader. So what is that? Well, you'll find that uh, they're often like list so many sources, paragraphs of sources, giant lists, you know, oh, the, the, this, uh, this narrative, this tradition in, in Sunni sources, look at how many sources we can reproduce. To, to imply that it's a very well-attested uh, tradition or a very well-attested narrative. But when you inspect, you know, this giant block of sources, you realize that there is something 
a bit sinister going on over here. So an example is uh, this uh, figure over here, this image. It's circulated a lot in on social media, even by some uh, Shia clerics, right? That's where I found it. Um, so it has a quote. The quote says, upon his death, meaning uh, uh, upon Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu's death, the Khalif declared, so this is Abu Bakr on his deathbed, supposedly saying something, I have never regretted anything like I regret these things. I wish I had never ordered the ambush of the house of Fatima and rather left it as it was. So this is a supposed quote of Abu Bakr on his deathbed regretting some sort of attack that took place against Fatima's house, right? And then you see here, this: it says Sunni references, right? Seven sources. So a layman reader will see this easily and you'll get impressed. Layman Sunni and the Shia, by the way. So the, the layman Shia will, will be given confidence that this is a very well-attested uh, tradition. It's authentic. authentic. And uh, the Sunni layman will be confused. You know, uh, you know the, this seems to be a problematic tradition, right? And it has so many sources. But when you analyze these sources, you realize that they're, they're all literally quoting the same source. This is one account that is just spread across different primary and secondary sources. Yeah, so, so, it's in, so it's not multiply attested in an independent fashion. It's just different sources referring back to that same single source. Yeah, not at all. There's no, there's no independence over here whatsoever. Um, to even further elaborate, Marjam al Kabir by Tabarani, let's say, is a primary source. Majma Zawaid is coding al Marjam al Kabir. If you if you like look at it, that that should not add any confidence. Exactly, and the time gap, the time gap between yeah. Ibn Hajar al Asqalani and Imam al Tabari, for example, like clearly, you know, yeah. uh, the, yeah, the sources huge... are extremely later than much later than the others, so you wouldn't rely. Yeah. And then, uh, subhanAllah, Tariq al-Tabari, for example, and Mu'jam al-Kabir of al-Tabarani, they're coding the same transmitter, who is Ulwan ibn Dawood. So th this is actually just one account through one man, right? That's just being coded in primary and secondary sources. Uh, one isnad, but it looks like it's seven, like it, it could confuse someone uh, to look like it's seven isnads. But not, not only that, there is a misrepresentation of some sources. So for example, Number four here. I'm not sure how clear it is. Yeah, Lisan uh, al Mizan. Lisan al Mizan of Ibn Hajar. Okay, that uh, layman will see this. It's like, wow, that's another another source to add to the list. But Lisan al Mizan is dedicated to weak transmitters. It's a book written about weak transmitters and their problematic traditions. Yeah. Right? So they're citing something that actually should undermine exactly. you know, this, this tradition, but it's cited as reasons to believe it's it's well attested and corroborated and um yeah and then furthermore another misrepresentation you'll find is uh, source number three muruj al-dhahab by al-masoodi it's a secondary source no it's not it's obviously taken from the same account of Alwan ibn Dawood, but it's a second later secondary source he's a shi'a the author is a shi'a right so it's not a sunni source um, so this is also something that happens, by the way, like in these discussions, right? Because they believe that the, the Shi'i narrative can and should be substantiated from Sunni sources. There's a lot of um, uh, 
uh, it's, also giving, it's also giving the impression that the authors of these works deemed it authentic, right? Of course. It's kind of, it's kind of misleading to not mention yeah. what the opinions of the authors themselves were. Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, with Muruj al-Dhahab, the third source, as I was saying, there's a lot of laxness uh, because of this, the Shia bias to, to prove things from Sunni sources, right? And misread things in Sunni sources. They, they, they are very lax in what they'll describe as a Sunni source. Hmm. So you'll, you'll, you'll find, for example, an author with clear Shia biases and historic biographical sources will mention that, right? But no, it's a Sunni source. You'll find, for example, an author that is coding 12 sources. Like an, you'll find an obscure book written by an obscure author. And no one knows who this guy is, at least in, in, in Sunni, you know, uh, bibliographies and whatnot. Yet this person is quoting 12 traditions from 12 sources. Yet he'll be peddled as a, as a Shafi'i, you know, at least as a Sunni source. We'll, we'll use it against you. It's very common in these discussions. So this is just uh, another example of that. And, uh, you know, this is the fruit of it. Look, there's like an image and it, it's meant to invoke emotions. Like there, there's a lot going on in this picture, right? They're at the door. Fatima's behind the door. She's she's scared and surrounded by a bunch of brutes, right? And uh, subhanAllah, so so much uh, sinister and dubious appeals in just one small figure. And I actually analyzed this tradition in detail in uh, in my book. So if anyone's interested, there there's several things going on over here. There's a, a weak transmitter, and then there is an omitted uh, forger that is in this not so there's more to it it's a pretty interesting example of how something dubious can be believed by a bunch of people mm. uh, okay so we, we talk about some of the methodological issues in these discussions uh, some of the the dishonest practices that often take place in these discussions and and then uh, misleading appeals and whatnot let's further elaborate on you know why is precaution particularly warranted in these discussions, right? So generally speaking, as Muslims and as sane, rational people, right, in both capacities, whenever we have, you know, a historical claim, we obviously need a, a threshold, uh, a way to verify that it's true, right? We can't just believe stuff because they're mentioned in early sources, right? Any reasonable person would agree with that, and especially Muslim, you know, we... we, we uh, prioritize truth and we know that lying and deceit are are condemnable right and especially when it comes to islamic history especially when it comes to people that uh, you know we respect uh, we obviously need some degree of precaution if not special precaution you know when addressing these narratives so we'll we'll go a bit into that when we look at history you know pre-islamic history we we can extract a lot of insights. And I say this because a lot of the examples I may cite from Islamic history, there's a lot of baggage that goes into them. So I'm not going to use Islamic sources to highlight my point per se. We'll take a step back and we can look at Christianity, for example. And we actually get an idea of how these forgeries develop and how these forgeries you know, can, can gradually shift entire narratives resulting in different doctrines, right? And that should be just another example or another reason why we should be particularly precautious, you know, with not just history, but 
uh, obscure and controversial claims within history. And so in Christianity, we observe that these forgeries can turn heroes into villains and villains into heroes. It's, it's not uncommon and it's very strange. And we as Muslims are able to look at it, you know, without any baggage because we are not Christians, right? So it's, it's particularly uh, impactful or, or profound in that respect. So what am I referring to? In Christianity, obviously you have the, the main four canonical gospels and uh, uh, Bassam, I know you are, uh, mashallah, very well read in these things. So feel free to chime in, you know, when I talk about this. Oh. Christianity is not my specialty, but I'm also interested in, in a lot of its uh, you know, historiography. So uh, according to Christianity, of course, and that's how uh, I'm going to address this, they believe Isa, alayhi salam, the prophet, was crucified, right? So in their belief that he was crucified, obviously, there, there are a set of events that preceded the crucifixion, right? What happened? He was taken to the trial and the mobs, you know, watched it. And the, the Roman uh, governor, you know, in, in, in Palestine at the time, uh, Pontius Pilate, he, uh, you know, reigned over that uh, trial and whatnot. Right? So there's certain events that happened. In the synoptic uh, or in the four canonical gospels of Christianity, the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are the gospels that Christians today generally consider, you know, reliable and uh, authentic sources about Jesus. Uh, Jesus or Isa salam, was tried by Pontus Pilate. So the Roman governor was the one who tried Jesus, right? Uh, and in the gospel of Luke, Pilate, you know, this uh, Roman governor, he sends Isa salam, to, the, to the Jewish king, uh, Herodas, who was in Jerusalem at the time, for, for the Jewish king to judge him, right? But Jesus is then sent back to Pontus Pilate uh, for the ultimate verdict. So Herodas wasn't able to condemn him to any clear, uh, uh, you know, uh, sin or, or transgression that warrants any punishment. So he sent him back to the Roman uh, governor Pontius Pilate. In these different accounts, all of the four gospels, there is this theme that Pontius Pilate is... He's uncertain about like what what sin has this man committed that warrants him to die, right? So he's addressing the Jewish elders, uh, the Jewish mobs. You know what has this man done? Like I don't see anything that he's done that warrants execution, which is what you want him want to happen to him, right? So he asks that he 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 thinks you know he reflects. Nonetheless, to appease these mobs. And, and to, out of fear of any backlash, he actually ha ends up trying Jesus and executing him, right? So what happens, according to the Gospels, of course, this is not the Muslim belief, but according to the Gospels, then the Roman soldiers proceeded to torture and humiliate Jesus, right? And then ultimately facilitate his crucifixion. Okay, so, so this is a, a certain outline of events. Generally speaking, there is a, this consistency across the four Gospels which obviously influenced each other. That's a whole other issue. I'm not trying to say it's well attested. Okay, so you see, uh, there is this idea, very vague idea, that the Jews were more wicked than the Roman uh, governor, per se, right? It's not stated, and it certainly is not absolute. Like, at the end of the day, Pontus did have him executed. He's not innocent. But... 
he's a, a, a bit less uh, uh, ruined or wicked than, than the Jewish elders who wanted him killed, right? At least he acknowledged that this man has not done anything wrong. So you see the beginnings of this idea that, that the Jews were worse than the Romans, right? And they bear, bear more, a bit more of the burden and, you know, I believe it's in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, they, they even say, you know, the burden of uh, this is on us and our children, right? To further highlight this idea, but it's still very vague, very ambiguous. Still, Pontus, like, you read this, you, you, you get the impression that he's not a believer in Jesus, right? He's just a random a Roman governor with self-interest who acts by, you know, by these interests and appeases the Jewish mob. Okay. In another text, which is the Gospel of Peter, it's uh, an, uh, it's from the Apocrypha. So Christians don't consider this canon. They don't consider everything in it reliable, if anything in it reliable. In this Gospel, there is a slight shift, a very small shift in the narrative. The sentence against Jesus, the, the final verdict, is issued by Herodas, the Jewish king, not Pilate. So earlier we see Pontius Pilate is unsure, he's uneasy, he, he admits that he sees nothing wrong in Jesus, but he nonetheless issues the verdict and has Jesus executed. In this other gospel, no, it's not Pilate who has uh, Jesus executed, it's the Jewish king Herodotus. But Pilate nonetheless was present at the trial. And uh, at the end, Herodotus has Jesus delivered to the Jewish mob that executes Jesus. So now you see a, a withdrawal of Pilate from this you know, scene and, and, and an exaggeration of Herodotus's role, right? Again, it's, it's, you could see how, where, the, if, it's, if this is forged, you could see where the forger is coming from. In the earlier narratives, there's like a tiny kernel of truth related to this, where Pontius is unsure, he admits Jesus is innocent, and he still has him executed. Here, the forgers develop that a bit, where Pontius is there, right? He's not necessarily fully free of guilt, because he could have stopped it, maybe. But the verdict is by Herodotus, the Jewish king. And the Jewish mobs are the ones who take care of Jesus and end up uh, crucifying him. Okay, that's one document. And then there's, uh, probably later in history, there is a set of documents that uh, some refer to as the Pilate, the Pilate Gospels. Um, so according to Bart Ehrman, he talks about these sources in his book Forged. He says that these are a series of documents that are mostly designed to show that Pilate was not at fault for the death of Jesus and that he felt considerable remorse after the deed was done. So, so in the earlier narratives, we see, okay, uh, the, the earliest ones, uh, he's uneasy about executing Jesus. He admits that he sees him doing nothing wrong, but he has him executed. You see then a later development. No, no, no. It's Herodas, the Jewish king, who has Jesus executed, not Pilate. And then in these later sources, there's this idea, an added idea, that he felt remorse you know, after the deed was done, and and they, they just further exaggerate this idea that he was innocent or, or or not as implicated in this grave sin that was done against Jesus. 
And uh, Ehrman adds, in several of these writings, these later Christian writings, we learn that Pilate not only repented of the evil deed, but he actually became a believer in Christ. So this is an idea you cannot get from the earliest sources. It is a later accretion to this narrative that he became a believer and he repented and all, all that stuff. But you see how this forgery, the ultimate forgery, which seems so extreme, right? You see how there, there is a kernel of truth. So these later Christians who believe this, they could look at the Gospels and say, look, this is evidence. This is actually, he's a good person. Look, he's, he's, he's trying to stall the execution of Jesus. Look, like forgeries often stem from tiny kernels of truth that are then developed and developed and developed and developed until the, the, the final form of the forgery, which is patently fallacious. But in retrospect, a person who believes that forgery can look back, right, and selectively read these earlier Christian sources and uh, believe that he's justified in this belief, right? What am I talking about? Well, in later, uh, you know, uh, in later Christianity, this idea that Pilate converted and uh, you know became a devout believer, this became accepted part of the accepted lore from the early church. In fact, in the Coptic Church, Pilate was eventually canonized as a Christian saint. As a saint, he's not just a believer; he's a saint, right? So. Uh, Ehrman adds, if Pilate was not responsible for Jesus' death, then who was? The Jews, right? And uh, so this is an example. You see how small, subtle changes in a narrative that stem from an idea that is vaguely exhibited in a text, they slowly lead to these weird outcomes. So not only is the criminal, you know, um, vindicated of the crime, no, the criminal transforms into the saint, right? So now Coptic Christians today, the murderer of Jesus, someone who took role in the, the murder of Jesus is a saint. So this is just telling how, how powerful these these forgeries and small shifts, it's a very small shift, very, very right? Small. Like, it's a very small shift that... like in Because in the Gospel of Peter, like the shift happened gradually by shifting it more to the Judean king Herodotus, right? Um, so it yeah. didn't transform him into a saint just yet. And then that, and then that yeah. evolved. So, yeah. Yeah. It's not like he was absent. Yeah, yeah, no, to, he was there. sneak these things in, you know. So, the, so yeah, these forgeries develop gradually from things that already exist. They just build on it. Yeah. And uh, the shifts are very subtle, right? A lot of forgery, forgers, obviously, they, they write their forgeries while acquainted with what existed before them, like the writings, mm. right? So they they build on them. It's not like uh, someone from outer space just inventing stuff that's so obviously wrong. Mm. Often a forger is, is enhancing something. Yeah, He may not even be making something up. He might be take something that has a truth to it, and he's just adding more details and filling certain gaps. And sometimes he's adding ideas and filling more gaps. Right, so this is a great example of, of the power of forgeries and and alterations of historical traditions, and uh, they can shape, reshape, and craft entire narratives about early historical events, and and they and they can transform the criminal into a saint and the saint into a criminal.
right? Now, in Islamic history, we have similar things taking place. Um, and I would uh, venture to argue that this is probably a phenomenon exhibited in almost all uh, traditions, all histories, all religious traditions. Uh, you know, when people start disagreeing, uh, they start making stories up, they start developing their stories, uh, they start prioritizing their own at the expense of others, and they start misrepresenting others and, and then maligning them. So what am I talking about? Well, in early Islamic history, during Hadith transmission, there were actually groups of forgers from Shi'i backgrounds and other backgrounds as well, who were notorious for forging hadiths, fabricating hadiths that maligned their theological opponents and also exaggerated the merits of their, their own people, right? Their own uh, 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 heroes or their own uh, 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 figures that they look up to. So there is a genre uh, of hadith that is known as the fadaib. Right, which usually revolves around the merits of a certain people or a certain group or a tribe or a city. It's just a hadith about the merits of, of, of something. And then there's another genre of literature literature and hadith that really did proliferate among the Shia most, which is known as the mathalib uh, or, or faults. So this is a, a genre of hadith that was specifically about the faults, blunders, and defects of the Sahaba, usually. That's what it was often about, right? And naturally and understandably, these two genres were recognized to be some of the most compromised genres of Hadith. So it's understandable. Forgers from any sect, they will forge Hadiths that praise, you know, their, their guys, and they will forge Hadiths that malign and condemn their opponents, right? And so as an example in early history, there was a, a Rafidi forger, and there's many, I'm just listing a few examples. There was a Rafidi uh, extreme uh, Shi'i forger named uh, Ja'far ibn Ahmad ibn Ali ibn Bayan. And uh, Ibn Yunus, uh, the Muhaddith and historian described him saying, he was a lying Rafidite who used to fabricate hadiths that disparage the Prophet's companions, right? In another instance, there is this extreme Shia forger named Abu al-Jarud, whose real name is Ziyad ibn al-Mundhir. Uh, ibn Adi, the Muhaddith, describes him saying, he is suspected of forgery whenever he transmits anything pertaining to the merits of Ahlul Bayt. The predecessors used to accuse him of fabricating reports in the merits of Ahlul Bayt and in the blunders of others. So he would fabricate pro-Ahlul Bayt hadith, and he would also fabricate hadith that condemn you know, other Sahaba. And in another instance, um, uh, Ibn Hibban uh, describes a transmitter saying, um, he was a Rafidite who used to fabricate hadith reports about the blunders of the Prophet's companions, and he used to transmit reports in the merits of Ahlul Bayt that are baseless. It is impermissible to transcribe his transmission. And of course, this phenomenon is not limited to, to early Shi'i forgers. There were early forgers, for example, who were partisans of Muawiyah, right, in Syria, who fabricated traditions that praised Muawiyah and condemned Ali. Right, this is a, kind the, of a human phenomenon. And the Sunni scholars called called that out, right? 
of course, you know, we have no such tradition now in our authentic collections. But if you go to a book like Tarikh uh, Dimashq of Ibn Asakir, which is more or less just a collection of, of traditions without any criteria per se to, to verify them. It's just a history book that compiled everything. Um, you see traditions that uh, praise Muawiyah at the expense of Ali. Right. There's there's Syrian traditions like that. And of course, we don't believe them. They're unreliable. They're they're similar forgeries, you know, done by Nasibi forgers or 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 pro Muawiyah partisans, uh, you know, from early Syria. And of course, this is not just about uh, Sunni Shia, you know, within the within the Sunni, uh, you know, schools, you have people that are, uh, you know, partisans and extreme. You have forgers everywhere. Um, there were forgers uh, who fabricated traditions against uh, Imam Shafi. Famous uh, hadith, uh, it even rhymes, right? It's it's like it's supposed to be catchy. The Prophet says that uh, there shall be a man in my um whose harm uh, upon my ummah shall shall be worse than Iblis, meaning the devil. His name is Muhammad bin Idris, right? So it's a forgery. It's obvious forgery. All the muhadithin uh, they recognize it as an obvious forgery. Right, so this this phenomenon where people will will malign their opponents and and forge traditions and and the books that condemn them, this is a widespread phenomenon. It even exists in Christianity, right? Uh, so if you were to look at uh, Bart Ehrman's book Forge, he talks about this phenomenon. You know, there are different motives why someone would forge something, and and this is a very common motive across history, including Islamic history. So it's just another reason for us to be precautious. When we know that there is a certain event where forgers from a certain sect were particularly invested, you know, in, in forging things about and fabricating traditions, that should warrant precaution, right? Just pre extra precaution. Extra precaution because it's not just any history. It's a very controversial uh, aspect of history where uh, the incentive to forge things is, is definitely present and obvious. So, till now, we've not actually addressed the narrative, you know, about Fatima and whatnot. We're talking about methodological issues, uh, possible effects of forgeries, how forgeries work, um, you know, some problems associated in, in a with a lot of these discussions. So now, that leads to the question, you know, what, what actually happened? And I ask this because it's very important for us, you know, before we refute of a narrative or respond to it, we have to ask ourselves, well, are we even acquainted with the true historical narrative, you know, before we jump into the debate, before we analyze this obviously forged text that I'm going to address. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of mainstream Muslims who, who jump into these discussions with Shi'is, you know, they'll debate back and forth, but they don't actually know what the true uh, narrative is, right? Yeah. The other narrative that you are responding to may be, you know, patently fallacious. It, it could be the case, you know, something that is so obvious that it's forged that you may not need to even know the original narrative to recognize that it's forged. That may be the case in some instances, but generally speaking, it's it's always good that you know we first acquaint ourselves, you know, uh, with the truth uh, before we respond to other narratives. And and there's several fruits to that, even in this. Uh, in this presentation, other than what I just said, there's other like uh, fruits to it where you you'll begin to notice certain trends and, and appreciate you know the criticism a bit more. So, what happened? Where did it happen? What are we talking about? Well, 
after the, the Messenger of Allah death, as soon as he died, and this is recorded in a lengthy tradition in Sahih al-Bukhari, the Muslim community effectively uh, began to experience some sort of polarization. During the Prophet's life, before his death, you had factions within Medina that were all under the, the guidance of the Prophet. So you had the Ansar, right? Um, they all accepted, they, they generally accepted Islam and they submitted to the Prophet, they, they internalized Islam. But there was a bit of that tribal tension. They, they, they first of all had this sense of belonging, they're from one tribe, right? And that entails certain things in Arab societies. Right, our cousins, our second cousins, they help each other, uh, they ally with each other against outsiders. So there's this general body of the Ansar who have this sense of belonging to each other, right? Which is very understandable. It's not necessarily a bad thing per se. And within the Ansar, they also are divided, right? They have different clans and different loyalties within these clans. So you have the big two tribes of the Ansar, the Aus and the Khazraj. And each each of these tribes had its own like representative or its own uh, leader who, who was like their leader beneath the Prophet right? So the Prophet would give their leaders instructions and they would like disseminate those instructions and whatnot. So the point is, the society was, was kind of polarized a bit even during the Prophet's life. You had the Ansar and then you had the Muhajirin who were also this sort of uh, entity that existed. Even though the Muhajirin were a bit more diverse in their backgrounds, but they're non-Ansaris who migrated to Medina as Muslims. And so it was like actually some sort of like tribal, it functioned like a tribal uh, affiliation, you know, Muhajir versus Ansar. And so after the Prophet's death, you know, the society didn't just magically change. It still had some polarization. And, and what happened is the Ansar um, went to the Saqif of Bani Sa'ida, which is one of their vicinities, and they appointed their own leader. Right. They had they did they, they, so immediately after the Prophet's death, the Ansar coalesced, they united together, and they said, This person is going to be the our leader after the Prophet. And he was Sa'ad bin Ubada, a man from the Ansar. Okay. And then there was another entity that was uh, polarized in another direction, which is uh, the Prophet's family, right? And his relatives and, and and their associates, they stayed in their areas doing their own thing, burying the prophet. And and they had some some talks about them being, uh, you know, the leaders after the prophet. Like there's traditions in, in Sahih Bukhari and whatnot. Al-Abbas tells Ali, let's let's go like ask the prophet, see if he could like give us uh, leadership, right? So, so this idea certainly did exist in this faction, if we may call it. And then there was another faction, which was the Muhajirin. Right. So the general body of the Muhajirin, even though Ali was from the Muhajirin, but Ali was maybe his own, him and his uh, associates, they were like uh, another group. And then you had the Muhajirin. So as soon as the Ansar coalesced at the Saqif of Bani Sa'idah and appointed a leader from among themselves, Abu Bakr and Umar and the Muhajirin recognized that there's several issues that one, the, the Caliph has to be from Quraysh. That's one of the main issues. Second of all, Sa'ad bin Ubadah is a very tribal person. And when you read his life, you realize, you know, different ev events in the Sirah, he would not be an ideal character for that role, right? There were several points in the Sirah where Sa'ad bin Ubadah was going to get involved in like a full-blown tribal conflict within the Ansar, 
right? So there's several reasons and valid grievances why someone like Abu Bakr and Umar would recognize that this is not a good step. So they go to the Saqifah, the group of the Muhajireen, and some clans of the Ansar, according to some sources, even like joined them. So it's not just the Muhajireen. There were some factions within the Ansar that agreed with Abu Bakr and Umar. They went to the Saqifah. The tensions were high. Tensions were high. A conflict, a full-blown conflict could have ensued. Right. This is mentioned, like you see it in our sources, a fight was about to happen, a brawl. And uh, what happened then is Abu Bakr successfully assuaged and, and calmed down these tensions. And that gathering ended with both the Ansar and the Muhajireen all pledging allegiance to Abu Bakr. Right. So now there is uh, most Muslims, almost all Muslims now agreed on Abu Bakr, and Umar, uh, on, uh, Abu Bakr as the caliph. So that's the context. Right. Then you had Ali and his associates, they were still in their vicinity. And now you, you have the Muslims agreed on uh, the ruler, Abu Bakr, Ansar, and the Muhajireen, who are the majority. They agreed with uh, Abu Bakr as caliph. And you have Ali, who's withdrawn in his house or his vicinity with his associates. So that's the context that we are at. It's at this point where the imagination now can begin to uh, uh, invent things and uh, you know build build the narrative. So this is the precursor to what we're talking about. Now, before I analyze the next you know events that happened that followed uh, the Saqifah of Bani Saida, it's important to know that we often we as mainstream Muslims. Are, are are semi influenced by by the twelver approach to history, and so we 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 may end up granting these events, especially the next event that I'm going to talk about. We end up granting it more significance than it actually deserves, right? We end up treating it as though it was a significant event in early history, while the reality of the matter is that it may not be as significant as twelvers make it out to seem, right? And when you treat an event with greater significance than it may really deserve, you may approach it with problematic assumptions. For example, you may approach it expecting to find so many different uh, accounts of it, right? Even though if it wasn't actually as significant as, as you now believe, or as you're now led to believe, then uh, it would not have as many eyewitness accounts. It's something small. It may not be that big of a scale as, as is assumed from the Shi'i. So this is something that we actually uh, have to acknowledge, right? A lot of our debaters, a lot of our analyses of historical sources, sometimes we just take the bait. You know, we, we, we assume it's as significant when, when in reality, you know, we should not expect it to be a mass transmitted event per se. It may prove to be a mass transmitted event, right? We don't know. That's the whole point. We have to look at historical sources and try to mitigate these kinds of assumptions, right? And, you know, this is like the difference between, like when you outline a historical event like this, right? Like attack on Fatima. What it may actually be in the early sources is a small short-lived brawl, short brawl between some Sahaba versus a cosmic invasion and assault on Fatima. Like even the way you say it, even the way you say it, it has different weight, different implications, right? A small brawl between a few companions of the Prophet, between a few male companions of the Prophet that quickly was dissipated, 
is obviously going to have very different significance than like uh, a whole army invading, you know, the, the house of the prophet's daughter and killing his daughter, right? So th that's just an example, right? One should obviously have a degree of extreme attestation if it's like that significant versus a rather insignificant event, you know, two men fighting or, 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 or 10 men fighting and then ending the fight in a few minutes and just everyone walking away without anyone dying. That's obviously going to be significantly less significant, right? And so before we even analyze the traditions, we have to take a step back and make sure we don't even approach with these kinds of assumptions. We, we should not take the bait. You know, our, our uh, 12 er polemicists and apologists, they make this thing seem that it's a cosmic event in Islamic history, but it really may not be. It may not prove to be the case. So with that being said, let's actually begin analyzing traditions related to, to this supposed event. So we'll start with the most accurate account, historically speaking. So I'm going to actually read it to you, and I'm going to actually read the rest of the accounts as I go through, because I don't want this discussion to just be theoretical. Um, it's very easy, you know, when you have a blatant forgery with all the indicators of forgery in the text and all the exaggerations, it's very easy to sanitize it. When you say, well, uh, this is a narrative, we're going to talk about this narrative, and you don't actually read it. Uh, it's part of my objective to read these different accounts so that the reader actually gets a feel of what we're talking about. We're, we're not going to sanitize, you know, these, these narratives that are patently problematic, right? By just summarizing them. No, no, no. The whole point is that they're extreme and embellished. And that's one of the reasons why they're obviously problematic. So we'll start with the most accurate historical account. It's in our sources and we'll, we'll build on there and see what is happening and how things ended up the way they are today. Okay? So, the most accurate historical account of what took place is Muhammad ibn Amr ibn Alqama narrated on the authority of Abu Salama ibn Abdurrahman ibn Auf that he said, uh, Ali and the Zubair, so now we're, we're talking after the Saqifa, right? The Mahajirin Ansar all agreed upon Abu Bakr as the caliph. Now we have the, another group, which is Ali and his associates, they're in their area, right? So that's where we're starting. Ali and the Zubair entered the house of Fatima, the prophet's daughter, which was Ali's house. Umar Tas came and he said, come out for the Pledge of Allegiance, right? By Allah, you will come out or I will otherwise burn the house down upon you. Al-Zubair thus came out with his sword drawn. And a man from the Ansar and Ziyad ibn Labid al-Ansari, who was from the clan of Bayada, embraced him. He struck him and the sword fell out of his hand. Ziyad thus took the sword and Abu Bakr said, no, strike the stone with it, meaning break the sword, break it. So it's not used against anyone. The reports transmitter, Muhammad ibn Amr then said, Abu Amr ibn Himas, who was from the Lathi clan, uh, informed me. He said, I witnessed that rock that was struck by the sword. So, mm -hmm. so the rock that where, where the sword of Azubair was taken and hit on to break the sword, its imprint was, was left for a while of time. People recognized it in the area. Abu Bakr then said, let them be. Uh, uh, this congregation that was happening at Ali's house, Abu Bakr said, let them be. 
for Allah will eventually bring them. Uh, they then went out after that and pledged allegiance to Abu Bakr. They said, there was no one more worthy of the position than you, but we felt that Umar was extorting our matter from us. The people hence pledged allegiance to him on Monday. Okay. Obviously, this was a fitna, right? This is the Sunni narrative. We're not saying that uh, no conflict ever happened, right? There were tensions, uh, as I said earlier, in Saqifa. It could have uh, transpired into a full-blown conflict and war, and it was contained, alhamdulillah. And this is something even uh, Umar reported, right? He said, uh, yes, the, the pledge of Abu Bakr was a falta. It was uh, something that we almost you know, almost lost control and all hell, hell went loose. Just like the apostates around Medina, they all apostatized, all these tribes. So it was a dire time. That's something that we believe in, right? And there was a fitna between the Sahaba and whatnot. So this actually is the most accurate account. With that being said, its isnad is not the best. It's a mediocre isnad. Uh, Muhammad ibn Amr ibn Alqama is a truthful transmitter, but he was criticized um, often even for, for his transmission from Abu Salama ibn Abdurrahman, who is uh, his source over here, right? This is the most accurate account, Yes, yet it's Isnad does embody some weakness, right? And so that's something we should acknowledge. There's actually, for this entire event, every tradition we're going to assess after this, it also has weakness. There is not a single account for this event that you can with confidence say is 100% authentic to Isnad, right? Nonetheless, I still do believe that this general outline of this account is accurate. There is some corroboration to it, as, as we'll see. And and this is something important, right? The, the Shia love to, to claim that um, certain traditions are authentic according to Bukhari's criteria. We'll get to those traditions. But the reality of the matter is that there is not a single tradition about this event in, in, in at least this detail, if not more detail, that does not have illa or, or some sort of defect in it, in its isnad or in its mitten. And, and we'll get to, to that uh, later. So the corroboration. So as I said, the earlier tradition has some weakness, but there is a corroboration to some details in it that lends us some confidence in its contents. So from the original Maghazi of Musa bin Akhba, uh, unfortunately, as, as you may know, Bassam's book was actually printed. It was lost, but the relevant part is actually like the manuscript is incomplete, even in the, the the edition that was published today. So the end, the last last part of it was lost, right? So I asked some people to check. Uh, I asked Farid, uh, shout out to him. I asked him to see if the tradition existed. I still don't have access to the book. He said, no, that part of the manuscript was not found yet. Nonetheless, the secondary sources that reference the Maghazi mention it, and it's mentioned in other sources, like in Mustadrak of Al-Hakim. This tradition, from the Maghazi of Musa ibn Aqba. It's related with a good isnad. Musa said, uh, Sa'ad ibn Ibrahim informed me. He said, Ibrahim ibn Abdurrahman ibn Awf informed me. He said, Abdurrahman ibn Awf was with Umar ibn al-Khattab on that day. And he was the one who broke a Zubayr's sword. God knows best as to who actually broke it. Hmm. So if we take a step back, we see that it said that a man from the Ansar and Ziyad ibn Labid al-Ansari, you know, uh, Ziyad took the sword, and he's the one who broke it. Here it says, Abdurrahman broke the sword. Nonetheless... Oh, oh okay, oh, okay. Uh, so it says Abdurrahman bin Auf uh, broke the sword here. Okay, fine. Uh, I yeah, thought, so in I this... Account, as Omar. Okay, yeah, all right. Yeah. 
So here it says Abdul Rahman, and there is a expressed uncertainty. It's it's not clear who exactly broke the sword, but nonetheless, this idea that Zubair's sword was broken is is attested. Yeah, so something happened on that day, and uh, this seems to be the most accurate account. Uh, but is, it, right? is, there, is there an attestation for Umar bin Khattab's remark uh, of threat, uh, threatening to burn the house? It seems to be the case. I, I will get to this. Okay. Uh, we'll see how the different traditions, they, they add certain details, but there is an underlying thing that is corroborated to an extent between the accounts. So there is another weaker corroboration. I'll just mention it before I go to the next body of traditions. In Al-Tabari's tarikh, uh, Al-Tabari said Ibn Humayd informed us, he said Jalid informed us on the authority of Mughira from Ziyad ibn Kulayb that he said, Umar ibn al-Khattab approached Ali's house when Talha and Al-Zubair and men from the Muhajireen were there. He said, by Allah, I shall burn the house upon you if you do not come out to pledge allegiance. Al-Zubair hence went out with him went out to him with his sword drawn and he tripped to which his sword fell out of his hand they rushed to him and acquired the sword this is a weak tradition ibn humayd was uh, accused of forging isnads right but it more or less says the same thing as in the earlier accounts i just mention it here because it's relevant but it's not that important because it's not weak and its contents exist in other sources this is in tarikh al-tabari okay a turn in the wrong direction. So there is then this other account that this is the one that the, the Twelvers love, which they purport to be an authentic uh, account of what happened. And when you look at it, you realize it's actually, it's more charitable than the, the account that I mentioned first as the most accurate one. Hmm. The account that I shared as the most accurate account it speaks of uh, a small brawl that occurred between Zubair and a uh, few Sahaba that was quickly ended and his sword was uh, confiscated, right? To make sure no one died. So <clears throat> what I believe is the most accurate account is not even that, uh, and it's, it's a little more real, right? Um, even though it has weakness and it's, it's not, but some of it's corroborated, as we said. A turn in the wrong direction. So this account, the, the Shia's love, because they, they believe it's, it's not it's a, it's very strong. Ibn Abi Shayba said in his Musannaf, Muhammad ibn Bashir informed us. He said, Ubaidullah ibn Umar informed us. He said, Zayd ibn Aslam informed us on the authority of his father that he said, when Abu Bakr was pledged allegiance after the Messenger of Allah, <coughs> Ali and Zubayr used to enter upon Fatima and consult her and discuss their, their affairs. When news of that reached Umar ibn al-Khattab, he set out and entered upon Fatima. He said, O daughter of the Messenger of Allah, none is more beloved to me than your father, and none after him is more beloved to me than you. By Allah, that would not prevent me from commanding that the houses burnt upon them if they congregate with you. When Umar left, he left the house, uh, Fatima, they came to her, meaning Zubair and Ali, they, they came back to the house, and she said, Fatima told them, you are aware that Umar has approached me and swore that he would burn the house upon you. By Allah, he will fulfill what he had sworn to do, so depart in peace. See what you shall do and do not come back to me. They thus left her and they only came back after pledging allegiance to Abu Bakr. Okay, 
The Shia love this because at a surface level, the transmitters in the Isnad are in Sahih Bukhari. They, you can find like transmitters for this Isnad in Sahih Bukhari. Of course, um, our critics validly point out, you know, mainstream Muslim critics, that Aslam al-Madani, the, the transmitter of this account, he actually didn't witness it. It's, it's a valid point. It's a valid point. There is a disconnection. Um, even though, to me, the problem with this account is actually, it, it transcends Aslam. You know, it, it's a valid point to bring up that the transmitter in this is not, didn't witness it per se. So but, uh, the, fa the father, uh, Aslam, um... He didn't live during this time, or uh, not, no, not he, that he didn't live during this time. But did he accept Islam later, or why? Yeah. why is there... So he was, he was. So Islam was Umar's mawla, right? Uh -huh. And he was brought to Medina as his mawla or his slave later, later after this event. It was he was not even in Medina at, when when this happened, oh. right? So uh, the Shia will say, well, he didn't witness it, but he heard it from Umar. It's an assumption. Hypothetically, it could be the case, but also it's an assumption at the end of the day. Um, so it warrants precaution. Nonetheless, my issue with this account is is uh, is other is something else. This account actually inaccurately summarizes what happened. Yeah. Right. So they like it, even though it, the account says nothing about an attack. Yeah. Right. The account. Uh, nothing about the Zubair just, and the sword. No, no, no. It says go, leave the house, and uh, don't come back. So they go, they pledge allegiance. Alhamdulillah, I mean, as well. They love this account, though, because to them, it's authentic, right? And they can use it to fill the gap, as we talked about earlier, right, the methodological issues. They take this account as the base because it's authentic, according to Sunni standards, supposedly. And there's other issues in the Isnad, by the way. I, I point out in my book, there's room for, for more discussion on the Isnad. So there's more details on that, nonetheless. They use this account as a stepping stone to project everything else in their sources on it. So they'll say, well, we can establish that Umar threatened, threatened the house, but that's enough. Now we can make the leap of faith and insert everything else from our sources to say that Umar killed Fatima and he broke her rib and they broke into the house. Pure misuse of traditions and pure misunderstanding of the traditions. But something else this tradition does, if you noticed, and I mentioned this specifically here as a turn in the wrong direction. Look at how it emphasizes Fatima's role a bit more than the earlier traditions. The earlier traditions, you know, uh, it makes no mention uh, of Fatima as a, a person involved in this controversy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? And here it says they're consulting with Fatima, which is also worthy of, of a pause. You know, uh, that that's not how the dynamic was. Yeah, where's Ali in this as well? Right? Yeah, Zubair and uh, Ali were consulting with Fatima. So this account, it, it, you see that slight shift that I talked to you about in uh, with Herodas and Pilate? It's happening here. Yeah, There is something. And, and Umar is addressing this congregation. He's not addressing Ali. He's yeah. addressing Fatima. He's talking to Fatima. So there is a, a similar, a shift of similar nature that is happening right now with Fatima that is more or less emphasizing her uh, her role in this event even though the tradition is is otherwise benign right yeah because uh, i mean the way i'm looking at this tradition um is that the matter was resolved right because yeah. at the end it said they thus left her and they only came back after pledging allegiance to Abu Bakr. so problem solved right uh, I, I mean it, this 
uh, like I can't read this tradition as filling any gap or having any gap in it that must be filled by another tradition, which would suggest yeah. that someone got hurt, someone was attacked later on, uh, that, that the house was actually burned, burned down. Uh, it seemed to have just been resolved. Yeah. Just by reading this tradition, so I mean, what, just by looking at it. Yeah. So what you're describing is what any sane, a reasonable person reading this account and not trying to misuse it would conclude, right? But as I told you, um, what these people often do is that they they preemptively believe that uh, the, the, our sources have been curtailed to conceal certain truths, and so there's something that's been tampered in this account, and 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 to them, they think that being able to prove that Omar just threatened Fatima is enough to them for, for their intents and pers yeah. uh, you know purposes which their misuse of historical sources this is exactly what i'm talking about like uh they look at our sources you know this incorrect reading because they believe that they, they, they contain kernels of truth that were concealed so whenever they find anything that's not necessarily even confirming what their sources say it's just a hint a hint they will say this proves our case and they'll fill all the gaps from their sources, right? So this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is the problem. This is why they love this account. One, because they argue it's it's not as according to the shart of al-Bukhari, which is not correct. That's not how a Bukhari standard works. Nonetheless, even if you were to assume it, there's a illa in this matin. The illa in this matin is that it actually... So uh, is, what does illa mean? Like a hidden deficiency? Illa is a, there's a defect in the matin of this tradition. Okay. One of the one of the defects that the muhadithin recognize is that sometimes when a, when a transmitter can summarize something, sometimes when when you summarize, you can actually end up altering the the, the original account. Some of something is lost, and whatnot, and that happened over here, right? This is not what happened. This is not how the event played out. You know, uh, I'm trying to be fair here. I actually believe the the original account is a bit more uh, you know controversial, right? A brawl happened between a Zubair who came out of the house. No one went into the house, right? You go to the earliest account. Yes, like there were, there, an actual fight happens. A sword was drawn. Zubair comes out with his sword drawn, um, and they just end it. They disperse it. Zubair, his sword falls down. They break his sword. The gathering is dispersed, right? So, so, so I'm not trying to whitewash history. I'm telling you, our history is it does have a controversial element. You just can't come and just project everything else onto it. That's it, not how history works, right? And um, yeah, so let's move on. And, and, and you'll, this is just the beginning. You'll slowly start getting an idea of, of what's going on over here after Islam's tradition. So as we said, Islam's tradition is a, is a turn in the wrong direction. It starts shifting. But sorry, if you could jog my memory, um, the, 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 the yeah. most accurate account, what you describe as the most accurate account, um, a few slides earlier. Uh, what source is yeah. that in? Okay, so this is in several sources. Uh, it's in a, a hadith uh, book called uh, Hadith Hisham ibn Ammar. Okay. And it's also in a primary source that existed. It's called uh, Kitab al-Saqifah of Abu Bakr ibn al-Jawhari. The source does not exist, but a secondary source quotes it with the isnad. So it preserves its, its isnad. So as, as I told you earlier, uh, there's not any report or account of this event 
that we can conclude with like near certainty that it's yeah. fully authentic like according to Bukhari's standards no every tradition has weakness and has some sort of defect which again should highlight that this event may have not been as significant as as we were assuming right like a small brawl between a Zubair that was eventually everything was pacified and just stopped there like no one died no one got seriously injured nothing happened it, it wasn't as significant um what you consider to be the most uh accurate account uh yeah the primary reasoning here is that the the isnad is the least problematic out of the rest or is it also from an earlier source than what you're showing later on like Tabari Tariq and Ibn Abi Shayba or the the source of the tradition. I'm, I'm trying to understand so, your reasoning for it yeah. being the more accurate account. Okay, so I'll tell you. It's, I consider it the most accurate for several reasons. One, it's not actually mediocre. It's not superbly reliable. Um, however, it's it's better than a lot of the other traditions, you know, in this context. Two, um, the main aspect of it, for my intents and purposes, the part of about the Zubair is corroborated in a, in a sound tradition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for me... So you find the elements of this story to be yeah. the best corroborated? Yes. Yeah, but it Fair still enough. is not fully authentic. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, it's not... Like, okay, you you know for a fact the Zubair sword was broken. Yeah. I think that's what I can conclude with with confidence. Everything else, sure, it could be fair game, but I do think this is probably the most accurate. I didn't say it's authentic. You know, I'm, I'm trying to be very precise with my wording here. Yeah, yeah. I do believe it's the most accurate out of all of the other accounts. Wallahu ta'ala. Or in other words, least problematic. Sure. Yeah, that's one way we can we can phrase it. So as we say now, uh, this later account of Aslam, who yeah. did not witness this event, and there's more room for discussion on his isnad, it centers it more around Fatima. Which is similar to what we talked earlier about, you know, Herodotus and Pilate. It's just like a subtle shift. Mm. And this subtle shift is what can enable later narratives now to build and center this event on Fatima when it may have had nothing to do with Fatima from the start. Right? Like Zubayr and Ali were not consulting with Fatima. That was not her role. And uh, Umar did not actually address Fatima. She was not the person being addressed. And Umar did not go into Fatima's house when Ali and Zubayr were not there. And talk to Fatima and, and warn her. But there's not there's a little development, Yani. It's not the most accurate tradition of what took place, and it shifts the narrative to Fatima, as I said. So now we'll see how slowly the weaker the accounts get, the more details they start building on this idea related to Fatima. Right? So so now you see an event that originally may have had nothing to do with Fatima, and you see a shift, and then it starts developing in that direction, right? So in this tradition of Al-Baladuri, it's reported that uh, Maslama ibn Muharib narrated on the authority of Sulaiman al-Taymi and ibn Aoun that they said, Abu Bakr sent to Ali requesting his pledge of allegiance and Ali did not pledge his allegiance to him. Umar thus came with a torch and Fatima met him at the door. She said, oh son of Al-Khattab, are you going to burn my door upon me? He replied, yes, that would be better for your father's faith. Ali then came and pledged allegiance. And he said, I had intended to not leave my home until I had compiled the Quran. So this is even weaker 
tradition, right? Masama bin Muharib, the transmitter of this account is unknown. And furthermore, the Isnad is broken between Sulaiman al Taymi and uh, bin Aoun and the actual event. They're like, they're removed at least two generations from this uh, event. But, but you see how this uh, development happens now? Mm-hmm. Now Omar comes with a torch, mm-hmm. right? It's not that uh, Omar, uh, you know, first of all, to- told people in the house, the initial account, he just tells them, come out or I'm going to burn the house. And then it shifts to him telling Fatima, I'm going to burn the house upon you. Now he comes to the door with a torch and he talks to Fatima, right? So again, now Fatima's role in this event is being more enshrined. And and, uh, and, you could, and it's also uh, portraying Umar bin Khattab as being, you know, drier and ruder with Fatima because then the Ibn Abi Shaiba oh, account, he's yeah. expressing his love for her. Right. Yeah. So he's making it seem like, like I love you, you know, I and I loved your father. Yeah. But it, I'm doing this out of what I think is the collective benefit of Islam. Yeah. Here it's like that. Okay, no, that doesn't look good for us. We want to portray Umar al Khattab yeah. as someone that did not like Fatima right? And so they took out the I love you and I loved your father bit, right? So that's another thing that I could see here. Yeah, and this is a good point. I'm glad you pointed it out. You'll see throughout the narrative, Omar is being transformed into a brute. Mm-hmm. A brute, you know, like earlier accounts, he is just a, a, a Muslim leader who loves the people involved, but he realizes that the, the, the Muslim public interest you know, will transcend. Right? There's, transcend everything. If there's something, yeah. If there's something that may lead to conflict, it's his responsibility to disperse. You know, this congregation. Here, you start seeing him more of a brute, like an ape, like and and that, and mm. that's how they do portray him. Like, and we'll, we'll get to this, yeah, mm. uh, later. Mm. But you see, now, now the convos between him and Fatima. She's mm. at the door. Um, whether he comes with a torch, this is another detail, right? It's not a threat. He's like with a torch, mm. live flame, ready to burn the door down on her, mm. and uh, talking to Fatima. And then uh, Ali says, uh, even then in this account, it's still not a full blown 12er account. Ali at the end says, I had not intended to leave my home until I compiled the Quran. Like, it's not that I necessarily objected to your rule. Mm. Uh, I, I was just tasked. I was I was trying to compile the Quran, you know, after the Prophet's death. I don't think it's hist- historical per se, but it's just an example. The, the account still is not in its extreme final form, right? Mm-hmm. Yet another development. And something I want to emphasize is the weaker the Isnads get, like which is what we're going through right now. We're going from strongest to weakest. You will see that the weakness is correlated with the dating of the Hadith. So, for example. In the earliest accounts, the weakness is the highest in this not like it's a, so that you could date the account to an earlier period. But in the weaker traditions that start getting more detailed and adding details, as I'm showing, the weakness is actually lower in this not. So these are later accounts like you can actually date these accounts. And that's what I exactly did in, in my book and in detail. And I show this. So the later the tradition, uh, you know, the more detail is getting. You could see this in this not. So nonetheless. We'll go to the next development in this narrative. Abu Bakr al-Jawhari, who's is author of this lost book on the Saqifah, um, which is some accounts from it are preserved with their isnad in secondary sources. Uh, Abu Bakr al-Jawhari said, Abu Zayd Umar ibn Shabba informed me. He said, Ibrahim ibn al-Mundir informed me. He said, Ibn Wahab informed us on the authority of Ibn Lahi'a. Put a, 
uh, line under Ibn Lahia. We'll get to this this transmitter later. Known to every of hadith. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Any muhaddith will know this person. So put a, a line under him. Yeah. On the authority of Ibn Lahia from Abu Aswad that he said, men from the Muhajirin were angered at Abu Bakr's Pledge of Allegiance without counsel. Ali and the Zubair were angered and they entered Fatima's house armed mm. to the addition. Umar thus came with a band that included Usaid ibn Hudayr and Salama ibn Salama, who were from the clan of Banu Abdul Ashal. These are the Ansar. They both stormed into the house. Wow. And Fatima screamed. And Fatima screamed and asked them by Allah. They took both Ali and the Zubair's swords and struck the stone with them until the stones um, until the swords were broken. Umar then took them outside and drove them until they pledged allegiance. Wow. wow. So development. It's developing, right? Now it's not even like radical. Uh, it's not Umar comes to the door and threatens and just or or has, or has a polite conversation, a calm conversation, yeah. like portrayed in the other or, narrations. Yeah. Or it's not that a Zubair comes out and he's subdued. No, no, they mm. storm into the house, mm, mm, right? Uh, and Ali and Zubair were armed, mm. and uh, both Ali and Zubair's swords are broken. Right? The earlier accounts mention only Zubair, mm. so so even the extent of the, the the brawl is now being inflated and exaggerated. And Fatima screamed, right? So, you the the, the pretense to mm. to this narrative is developing now mm. fatima mm. poor woman is being scared and and, and screaming friends. yeah 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 and she asked them by allah she's like begging them to stop right and then umar drove them outside like manhandled them and drove them to go pledge allegiance so again it's, it's getting more extreme the narrative is getting more extreme in the earlier account ali says oh i only stayed in my house because i'm trying to collect the quran like i don't have a problem with you here, no, they're angered with uh, Abu Bakr, uh, his Pledge of Allegiance, and they go to the house with weapons. So you see these narratives are just, some of them even contradict each other, yani, uh, which, which is telling about how yani, these accounts are not you know, accurately compiled often. Now, Ibn Lahia, he died in 174. He's weak. He's universally known as a weak transmitter. But not only was he weak, he was also known to be someone who was... Uh, fooled into transmitting traditions that are not his like uh, this is a process in hadith called talqeen you know think of it maybe like an old man he's sitting down his sight is maybe not that good to go back to his sources someone comes and tells him uh sheikh you transmit this hadith from this source from this source from this source and they'll read it to him he'll say yes i i, I this is one of my traditions but mm -hmm. it's not mm -hmm. like he could be tricked into 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 transmitting things that he never actually heard Mm. Right. And so it's very possible that this happened over here. He was known to, to be a victim of this practice. Mm. 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 So this is a later account. Uh, he died 174. I think a lot of his unreliability issues did go back to his memory primarily. Right. Yeah. So he, like, he why, already was. Why, why the Tulqeen actually worked on him. Yeah, so he actually was a weak transmitter from the start. Right. It's not just that the Tulqeen is the only problem. Mm. He was originally weak and there's yeah. just. And that's the why the worked on him. <laughs> yeah, uh, it just uh, compounded yeah, his weakness mm. uh, down the line. Okay. So now, uh, the, account, the later the account, the more detailed it gets and the more mm. extreme it gets. So it's not mm. just more detailed. It's more blatant. It's more theologically shiri. Mm. Right? The earlier accounts, 
very ambiguous. You you can't infer much theology from them, like about Ali's stances, Ali's grievances, his objection. Uh, there's not much to be inferred. Uh, the later accounts, they say it. They say what the Shia is trying to infer from these accounts. Mm. So in this other later account, um, again, from this lost book of a Saqifah that's quoted in a secondary source, uh, and I'm going to read it. And I have to read it so yeah. for the readers to get the context. Abu Bakr al-Jawhari said, Abu Bakr al-Bahili informed me on the authority of Ismail ibn Mujalid. Put a line under this man's name, Ismail ibn Mujalid, from al-Shabi, that he said. Abu Bakr said, Oh, Umar, where is Khalid ibn al-Walid? Umar said, here he is. Abu Bakr said, go to them, meaning Ali and Zubair, and bring them to me. They so now it's uh, 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 Abu Bakr commanding that they yeah. be summoned, almost like they're criminals, yeah. and bring them to me. They both set out, and Umar entered the house. So now he enters the house, while Khalid stood at the door outside. Umar told us Zubair, what is the sword? He said, I have prepared it so that I can pledge my allegiance to Ali. So see how I told you that like the, the Shi'i inferences that the Shi'i would like to infer they're actually now being included in the tradition, like the details. So it's theologically even more like developed and extreme from a Shia perspective. Yeah. So uh, Zubair said, I have prepared it, the sword, so that I can pledge allegiance, my allegiance to Ali. Yeah. And there were many people at the house. Among them was Al-Miqdad ibn Al-Aswad and the majority of the Hashemites. That's yeah. another development. This could be trying to inflate, you know, yeah. maybe something like five people. Now is like more people there, more significant. Umar thus snatched the sword, struck it on a stone inside the house. He then grabbed Zubair's hand, lifted him, and pushed him outside. Umar then said, Oh Khalid, take this man. Khalid grabbed him, and there was a large band of people outside the house. So the house is surrounded now. Like it's 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 like this doomsday scenario, and there's a poor oppressed group surrounded in the house. Umar then said, Oh Khalid, take this man. Khalid grabbed him and there was a large band of people outside the house with Khalid sent by Abu Bakr to protect them, to protect both men. It's, a, it's amazing how in all these different accounts, it's always a different person accompanying Umar bin yeah. Khattab. Like uh, you, you, once you have an Ansari name, then uh, Ansari, yeah. uh, uh, bin and then you have Abdurrahman bin Awf and, uh, yeah. and like two other names I can't even recall because I never heard yeah. them before in the previous one. Now Khalid bin Walid. Yeah. Yeah, of course, as I said, it's actually noteworthy that there's nothing fully authentic on this. Mm -hmm. Like even the, the accounts that we, we could conclude maybe do contain truth, there is also weakness in them. So the exact, exact details, they may not be as discernible as, as people like to think. And that's very possible with history, by the way. Like there's no rule in history that uh, when you read history, you're supposed to be 100% confident in every single detail that happened. There's some times in yeah. history where there's room for speculation mm. and you will not have concrete evidence for something. It's just a gap. It, it happens. Like it's not a, it's not necessarily a sinister yeah. decision made on a, a conscious choice. Nonetheless, let's go through this account and it, it keeps getting worse, of course, if you haven't gotten the memo. Um, so Omar then entered the house after he threw his manhandled, manhandled, right? So he's a brute. He's like an ape now that's like breaking, just carrying his Zubair, throws him out. Mm. He goes back into the house and said to Ali, 
get up and pledge your allegiance. Ali slacked and stood behind. So Ali was trying to not go. So Omar grabbed his hand and said, get up. He refused to get up. So Omar lifted him. So again, like the, the brute brute uh, person that they're trying to make Omar seem. So Omar lifted him and pushed him outside just as he did with Az-Zubair. And Khalid grabbed them both. Omar then violently drove both men and the people congregated to witness what was taking place. So now this is like a public uh, event. Medina is yeah. all coming to see, which which is not mentioned in the early accounts. Like, yeah, yeah. the significance of this event is now being exaggerated. Yeah, this is like self. This is the account is becoming self refuting now because you're making, because you know uh, again like if if everyone is witnessing this and everyone's seeing this going and this is like some big public spectacle. Uh, you would have definitely expected some more earlier sources discussing this, right? And, well, this is where describing the it, describing it this way, right? This is where the conspiracy theory comes, right? They have to, they have to believe there is a conspiracy theory. Oh no, 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 the, it was concealed. Mm. Like they have to project that onto sources to justify their beliefs, mm. right? Their beliefs are this extreme, so without this conspiracy theory, it doesn't make sense. As as you're saying, so they have to believe that oh, the governments and the muhaddithin colluded to to hide. It. Mm. Nonetheless, mm. Omar then violently drove both men, and the people congregated to witness what was taking place. Um, the streets of Medina were crowded, and Fatima witnessed what Omar had done. She screamed and wailed, and many Hashemite and non-Hashemite women gathered around her. Uh, she went to her house's door and called out, Oh, Abu Bakr, how quickly have you raided the Prophet's household? By Allah, I shall never speak to Umar until I meet Allah. When Ali and Zubair pledged their allegiance to Abu Bakr and Fatima, uh, and Fatima calmed down from the outburst, Abu Bakr visited her, interceded on her behalf. So Abu Bakr visited Fatima, and he interceded on behalf of Umar and requested that she be pleased with Umar. And so she was pleased with him, right? Again, it's it's a bit more uh, theologically developed from a Shi'i perspective, but it's still not full blown Rafili, right? Still, it, it's it's more extreme. It's more theologically developed uh, from perspective of a Shi'i, but still didn't get there to the final point yet to justify yeah, so the full. Exactly. I mean, here Fatima al Anha did not get hurt, like from what not I'm yet. Saying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Not yet. Nothing about her being attacked. She's just offended that they took her husband and, you know, stormed the house and forced him, humiliated him, literally manhandled him. Omar is like lifting him and throwing him around and, and whatnot. And this is not so, the description of the of Ali Ruanhu that, you know, that they, but they, like, yeah, believe uh, that. Okay. There's a lot that can be said. Mm. Nonetheless, the weakness in this is not starts with uh, Ismail ibn Mujalid. So he died between 180 and 190. So he's he's later than Ibn Lahi'ah. The earlier account, Ibn Lahi'ah, he died in 174. This figure, Ismail ibn Mujalid, died in 180, 190. He's a later figure. He's weak, and he's from Kufa. He's from Kufa. So he may have had some Shi'i uh, uh, biases, which is, which you see in this account. It's more visible, more visible, this Kufan Shi'ite uh, uh, bias. And of course, another source of weakness, it's inconsequential. But uh, it's disconnected between a Shabi and the Aventa. Shabi was a Tabi'i, so he's at least two generations removed from this uh, event. But it's not even authentic to him, right? So I'm just mentioning this as a, a side point. 
even the dialogues if you notice in this in this uh, report it's not just that there's details that are being added and uh, uh, you know it's being exaggerated and, and and you know the significance of the event is made to seem more inflated than it actually is but there's something else which is the dialogue is getting more developed right like there's entire exchanges and dialogues between the characters it's like a script yeah right it starts becoming like a script uh, the more the later you get in history and the more the weaknesses the the dialogues gets starts getting more developed with more details and more descriptions and more it's even you know the detail in the dialogue is not just that the transmitters are saying more information and 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 using more words to express themselves and the, and that their sentences are longer and they're more complete no it's even that their assumptions their thoughts their feelings their fears and their emotions are being mentioned in the traditions right so the development is is multifaceted so with that being said this is a later account after Ibn Dahiyah's developed account so it keeps developing you know with history let's go to the next one I will call this one the edge of the cliff because it's one of the latest accounts uh, that exist and is very detailed it's also found in this lost Kitab al-Saqifa that's preserved in a secondary source with its isnad, right? Um, so I will read it. Yeah. Bear with me. I apologize, but I have to read it. Yeah, it's important. Uh, uh, so this account is from Saeed ibn Kathir ibn Ufair. He's an Egyptian uh, transmitter, famous in Egypt at the time. But he died in the year 226. So he died around 40 years after the, trans the weak transmitter of the earlier account. So around 40 years later, and uh, his sources are anonymous. He doesn't even mention sources. So he's just talking. So this, this is like one of the weakest accounts. Um, this is the edge of the cliff. This is the one of the, the weakest accounts. And then the next step is just, we're gonna have to jump into 12 verse sources, right? So it's the edge of the cliff at what could possibly be considered uh, a Sunni source. You know, a Sunni source. It's even that is very debatable, right? But we're, just flirting with this idea to give the reader an idea of what's going on. Hmm. So, Sa'id ibn Kathir ibn Afir, this man who died in the year 226, without any sources, says, And Umar went with a band of people to Fatima's house. And among the band was Usaid ibn Hudayr and Salama ibn Aslam. Umar told those in the house, go and pledge your allegiance. They refused to fulfill his orders. Ar-Zubayr then went out to them with his sword drawn. And Umar said, get the hound, the dog. He calls him the dog. So, wow. so the, the dialogue, as I said, is developing. Uh, it's more dramatic, more theatrical, uh, everything in all sense. Uh, Salama bin Aslam thus leaped to a Zubair and he snatched his sword and struck it onto the wall. The band then drove Al Zubair, Ali and Bani Hashim. So the tribe of Bani Hashim is there. Uh, and Ali was saying, I am the slave of Allah and the messenger of Allah's brother until they drove him to Abu Bakr. So Ali was like, almost like crying, you know, uh, what are you doing to me? I'm, I'm Allah's slave and the Prophet's brother. Uh, it was then said to Ali, pledge your allegiance. And he said, I am more worthy of this matter than you. Uh, I shall not pledge my allegiance to you when you should be pledging your allegiance to me. Mm. You have taken this matter from the Ansar and you have cited your relationship to the Messenger of Allah as evidence against them. So they granted you leadership. 
I cite against you the same argument you had made against the Ansar. So be fair with us if you fear Allah from yourselves and acknowledge our right and leadership just as the Ansar had acknowledged yours. Otherwise, acknowledge your conscious oppression. So, now, so now a polemic, a polemic, yeah, a whole polemic. Uh, is being introduced yeah. into the story and, and projected yeah. into the mouth of Adi Exactly. So, so as I said, the, the, the theology is now being more developed of, of this account that's projected onto the tradition. Omar then said, you will not be left alone until you pledge your allegiance. Ali replied to him saying, Umar, this is an idiom that he says, Umar, a mil milk a milking, half of which will be given to you and strengthen Abu Bakr's matter today so that he can compensate you in the future. So he's he's doubting Umar's uh, intentions, yani, mm. that Umar has a vested interest in promoting Abu Bakr. Mm. Nonetheless, uh, Ali then says, by Allah, I will not accept your speech and I will not pledge my allegiance to him. Abu Bakr said to him, if you do not pledge your allegiance to me, then I will not force you to do so. Ubaidah then told Ali, oh Abu Hassan, you are young and these are the seniors of Quraysh, uh, your tribe. You do not possess their experience and acquaintance in matters. I see Abu Bakr only more firm, enduring and experienced in this matter than you. So concede the leadership to him and be content with it. If you are to live a long life, then you would be worthy and suitable for this matter due to your great status, relationship to the Prophet, your precedent in Islam, and your jihad. Ali thus said, O Muhajirun, I remind you of Allah. Do not remove or take away Muhammad's authority outside his household uh, to your houses instead. They have stripped his family from his status among the people and his right. Oh, by Allah, O Muhajirun, we Ahlul Bayt are more worthy of this matter than you. Was there not among us a reciter of Allah's book, a scholar in Allah's faith, a knowledgeable one in the Sunnah, and an acquainted one with the public affairs? So think, is there not anyone from Bani Hashim who can fit? It's a rhetorical question. Yeah. By Allah, such a person is within us. So do not follow your whims, and hence become increasingly distanced from the truth. Again, a polemic, full-blown polemic. polemic. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Bashir ibn Sa'ad ibn Ubadah said, had the Ansar heard the speech from you, O Ali, prior to their Pledge of Allegiance to Abu Bakr, then no two people would have disagreed in your regard. However, they have already pledged their allegiance. This is also like nonsense. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. Like, the Ansar now are like willing to backtrack after learning that Ali is uh, wants to be the Khalifa. Mm. Ali then went back to his house and he did not pledge his allegiance. He was confined to his house until Fatima died. died and he then pledged his allegiance to Abu Bakr. Yeah, all the pre all the previous versions so again, showed that Ali did uh did uh you know pledge his allegiance after yeah. he spoke to him. Yeah. So this issue about Ali's pledge is actually uh, interesting. And there's uh, different accounts of how it happened, when, and if it happened more than once. There's a debate on this. But nonetheless, the point of this account, barring all the other observations that you can make. This account is sound, an argument. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And that's ex that's what ends up happening. So the more weakness you add to the tradition and the later you can date the tradition, it starts sounding like a, a fourth century uh, Shi'i theologian came mm -hmm. and he's like, let's rewrite these stories and include our arguments within the dialogue that we use. Like that that's how it is, mm -hmm. really. And uh, so this is the edge of the cliff. Um, the last, uh, the most yani, distance of what could be feasibly considered as a Sunni source, even though I, I don't think this is really Sunni. But nonetheless, 
this is this is how developed it gets. This is the most developed and most extreme, uh, you know, one of the most extreme versions uh, in quote unquote Sunni sources. So now we will do the leap of faith, as I like to call it. We will jump to the account of Kitab Sulaim, and it is the most detailed and most gruesome and most embellished account. And even the, it's the most theologically developed too. So we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, polemics. This is the king of all polemics, you know, this, this account. Mm. Um, this is the 12 verse Shiri narrative, right? So now we're dealing with a 12 verse source that only 12 verse Shiris believe. Even Zaydi Shiris don't consider this reliable or other, other you know, mild sects of the Shia. So nonetheless, I, it's so long. It's like several pages long. I'm not going to read the entire thing. It's like five pages. I've made selections, right? So I can't even put it in the slide. So I have the book in front of me. I'm going to open the, to some pages and I'm going to read some select accounts just to give the reader a taste of what we're talking about. Okay. So Umar then told Abu Bakr, what prevents you from sending, this is the 12 source again, 12 Shiri Rafidi fabrication. Umar then told Abu Bakr, what prevents you from sending to Ali so that he may pay allegiance? Hmm. There is not a single person that has not paid allegiance except him and them four. Abu Bakr was the more soft-hearted kinder, cleverer, and more thoughtful of the two. The other one, meaning Umar, was the more short-tempered, hard-hearted, and estranged of the two. So I talked to you earlier about how the narratives are, it's making Umar seem like a brute as you 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 pass time. Here, it's not uh, even Abdullah, like making... Abdullah, there, one thought did cross my mind. I don't know if it's a small detail or not, yeah. but you know, here it's saying that Umar said that Ali was the only one who did not pledge allegiance yet. But when you look at mm. some of the other previous versions, it said, and the majority of the Ahlul Bayt were there in the house. Yeah. Kind of giving yeah. the impression that, hey, you know, they didn't even pledge allegiance yet. And they were, you know, kind of willing to pledge allegiance to yeah. Ali. So uh, it's kind of confusing here right now. Like, what are they really trying to say? That it was Ali alone? Or yeah. was it like the majority of the Ahlul Bayt did not pledge allegiance? Because otherwise Omar would have said, yeah, but the but the Ahlul Bayt didn't even put yeah. you yet. So the, yeah. I just wanted to make that so, remark because only because I think that's not very clear. It's very discrepant, right? There's actually a lot of contradictions and the small details. It's mm. very bad. Mm. You're right. You're right. Uh, uh, and none of this stuff should be taken for granted whatsoever. Like nothing should be considered like potentially reliable unless yeah. you have really good reasons and other sources, right? So I'm reading something to you. Consider it like maybe a... Uh, like the Christian apocryphal sources and gospels about Jesus. Like it's, that's, and, and Ibn Taymiyyah says something similar, by the way. He says, 12 sources, the amount of falsehood that they contain, these Shia texts, it's more falsehood than what Ahl Kitab's books contain, you know, about their prophets and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So, so let's go back to, to reading this account. So, as I said, um, it says Abu Bakr was the more soft-hearted, kinder, cleverer, and more thoughtful of the two. The other one, it doesn't say, but it's Umar, was the more short-tempered, hard-hearted, and estranged of the two. So the earlier accounts were, were trying to hint that Umar was like a brute, he was violent, he was using force, he was manhandling them. Here it's literally saying it. Like it's not even giving the reader mm. yeah, any don't, room for him to imagine it. Yeah, like don't deduce it. I'll, I'm going to lay, it, lay yeah. it out explicitly for you. Yeah, uh, yeah very developed. So, moving on, Abu Bakr asked, who shall we send to him? Umar said, we shall send Qunfur. 
This is a new character. He's an imaginary figure, by the way. I, I have a chapter devoted to him. The, the account invents people and like inserts them into it. There's no one called Qunfuz who fits the descriptions in, in these accounts. Nonetheless, that's a side point I delve into my book. So Omar said, we shall send Qunfuz to him, for he is a rough, short-tempered, and estranged man from the Tulaqa, from the clan of Adi ibn Kaab. Abu Bakr first sent Qunfuz to Ali, and he sent aides alongside him. Qunfud departed and requested permission from Ali to enter, and Ali refused to grant them permission. Qunfud's companions hence returned to Abu Bakr and Umar, and both men were seated in the mosque surrounded by the people. They said, we were not granted permission to enter. Umar said, go. So Umar now is like interrupting, right? It's not Abu Bakr, Umar is uh, violent, he wants the violence, and Umar said, go. If he does not grant you permission to enter, then enter his house without permission. So look at these details, instructions, and yeah. it's a script. At this point, it is a full-blown movie script, like a Hollywood script, details, and all, how every single detail happened. So Omar says, go. If he does not grant you permission to enter, then enter his house without permission. They departed and asked for permission to enter. To which Fatima said, Fatima, not Ali, Fatima. Fatima said, I bar you from entering my house without permission. They return. But Qunfud, the damned, this is what the account says, the damned remained. They said, Fatima said such and such. So we felt disconcerted from entering your house. Right? So they, they felt an inkling of, of remorse that Fatima asked them. So what happened? Ahmad became angered. And he said, what have we with women? <laughs> so he's like a, a misogynist brute, right? And this is what they do, like in their... You know, they do plays and they make movies yeah. out of this. Yeah. They make Omar like this a monster. <laughs> so he said, what have we with women? Omar, then he took matters into his own hands. Omar commanded people around him to gather firewood. Uh, so they carried the firewood with Omar and placed it around the house. Ali, Fatima, and their two sons. Around the house of Ali, Fatima, and their two sons. Omar then called out loud such that Ali and Fatima heard him, By Allah, you will come outside and pay allegiance to the Prophet's successor, O Ali, or I shall otherwise set your house on fire. Fatima said, O Omar, so now Fatima is like, uh, again, she's involved in this event a lot, and uh, she's talking now on Ali's behalf. O Omar, what have we with you? He, Omar thus said, Open the door, or we shall otherwise burn your house down upon you. Fatima then said, O oh, Omar, do you not fear Allah such that you would enter my house? Omar refused to leave. Omar asked for the fire to be brought, and he lit the door on fire. He then kicked it and entered the house. Again, look at all the details. Like The early accounts just say, uh, even the early weak accounts, they just say they stormed the house. They stormed the house. Even that's like a fabricated detail. But like even the early fabricated accounts don't have this much detail. right? So... He then kicked the door that was burned and entered the house. Fatima confronted him and yelled, O oh, Father, O oh, Messenger of Allah. Omar then raised the sword while it was sheathed and he struck her side with it. So, oh, see, now, now it's adding this uh, detail. And of course, you know, I don't, you know, this is very disrespectful to our Sahara and I don't share this, you know, to, to make a mockery of them. Yeah, yeah. But I want the readers to understand, you know, 
what we're talking about we're not talking about like oh uh, a historical account from a sophisticated source you know that uh it has its snads or anything no 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 we're talking about like a preposterous uh, script you know written in the fourth century by some forger who had a creative imagination really and, and I, I do want to continue reading this because it, it proves my point so Omar uh, he took the sheath sword and he uh, struck her side with it. Sheetha yelled, Oh, father. Omar then raised the whip and struck her arm with it. To which she yelled, Oh, messenger of Allah, wretched is what Abu Bakr and Omar have done after you. So now, uh, Fatima, like they, they stormed the house, they beat her. I mean, when you hit her with a sword and then he whipped her, this should have taken at least like what, 10 seconds, 15 seconds? Where is Ali? So that's, that's the question someone will ask. The forger has already thought about that. Don't worry. Ali leaped and grabbed Omar by his collar. He then shoved him to which Omar fell to the ground. And Ali struck his ear and neck. Ali intended to kill him. Uh, but he then remembered the messenger of Allah's speech and what he had advised him to do. So supposedly, in, the, in this source earlier, it says the Prophet told Ali, uh, they're going to overpower you, resist, don't don't resist, don't you. Unless, uh, so there's this idea that it's building on. Yeah, so he's strong enough to resist, but yeah. he's, he's purposely subduing himself. Exactly. And earlier accounts, no, Ahmad is like lifting him maybe with one arm, you know, throwing him around. Here, no, no. Ali pins him on the ground and uh, yeah, he the wanted to traditions, kill him. Umar al-Khattab tells Fatima that, that, that he loves her because she's the daughter of Rasulullah, had to come sitting down. Yeah. He came, pledged allegiance, everything was settled and everyone went back home, was happy. And now look at this. Oh, yeah. So moving on, he intended to kill Omar, but he then remembered the Messenger of Allah's speech and what he advised him to do. Ali thus said, By the one who had honored Muhammad with prophethood. Oh, son, uh, they use an insult to Omar, I'm not going to read it. Um, had it not been for a prior decree from Allah and then oath unto me by the Messenger of Allah, then you could not have entered my house. Omar has sent for assistance. Omar now is like being submitted. He sent for assistance. And the people came and entered the house. Ali leaped to his sword and Qunfud fled to Abu Bakr. So now the belligerents, they're, they're getting scared of Ali. Like Ali's overpowering all this like army. Again, it's a more developed uh, 12 Shi'i uh, rendition of Ali, right? With supernatural powers. Uh, so Qunfud fled to Abu Bakr, fearing that Ali would confront him with his sword since he was aware of Ali's strength and severity. Okay. Again, so the, the, the forger leaves no room for you to like infer or, or imagine. No, no, no. He has to tell you like what the motives are. Like he's not just telling you the dialogue. He's giving you motives and their fears and their insecurities. He's putting that in the text. Abu Bakr told Qunfut. So Qunfut ran away back to Abu Bakr scared. He left Omar. Omar now is being uh, submitted. Uh, Abu Bakr told Qunfut, return to Ali's house. If he comes out, then fine. If Ali comes out, then fine. Otherwise, enter his house. If he refrains, then set their house on fire. Qunfud, the damned, this is his imaginary figure, so he's not a real person. So uh, Qunfud returned and impermissibly entered the house with his companions. So now group, a mob stormed the house. Ali leaped to his sword. 
again, Ali leaped to his sword, but they beat him to it and outnumbered him. Some of them drew their swords, outnumbered Ali, and restrained him, and they tied a rope around his neck. Fatima stood, so Umar had already whipped Fatima and hit her with the sword, but she disappears, right, from this account, and now she's back. Fatima stood in between them and Ali at the door. So Qunfud, and the account says the cursed, so Qunfud struck her with a whip. When she died, later, a bruise from the strike, which resembled a shoulder bracelet, remained on her shoulder. And the account says, may Allah curse him and the one who sent him. Right? So this is the, the forge, forgers, like, he's even adding curses in dua against uh, the people he believes did this. Okay, so they got uh, Ali. He, he then sent, uh, this is just the one part. I'm going to read another part. I know it's taking time, but please bear with me. He then set out with Ali, violently dragging him until he reached Abu Bakr. Umar uh, was standing uh, um, with this. Sorry, uh, Umar set out with Ali or? Yeah, yeah Umar and Qunfud uh, and all these mob that uh, dragged Ali. Umar was standing with the sword before him and Khalid ibn al-Walid, Abu Ubaid ibn al-Jarrah, Salim, the Mawla of Abu Hudayfa. SubhanAllah, like Salim. You read the seerah, like this Sahabi, this young man, recited the Qur'an, was in Mecca. They threw him into this, this yeah. drama, oh. right? Salim, the Mawla of Abu Hudayfa, Mu'adh bin Jabal, Al-Mughira bin Sha'bah, Ubaid bin Hudayr, Bashir ibn Sa'id, and the remainder of the people were seated and armed around Abu Bakr. Uh, Sulaim, so now the transmitter of this account, was supposedly the Tabi'i, transmitting this account from Salman al-Farisi, Sulaim said, I asked Salman, did they enter Fatima without permission? And this is a, a part of this account that the Shi'i eulogists, they sing this. They like to sing this part because it rhymes on the minbar. So keep that into account. Did they enter upon Fatima without permission? Salman said, yes, by Allah, and she was not covered. She thus yelled at her highest voice, O Father, O Messenger of Allah, wretched is what Abu Bakr and Umar have done after you when your eyes are yet to close in your grave. So again, you see the, the, the poetic, dramatic aspects, like it's de the details are now being added. No, not only did they violate the sanctity of the house, not only did they beat Fatima and drag Ali, no, no, she was uncovered. But like, again, it's yeah. th this like poetic, uh, theatrical, it's adding details and, and whatnot. Uh, so she yelled, "Oh, messenger of Allah, wretched is what Abu Bakr and Umar have done after you. Yet your eyes are yet to close in your graves, in your grave." And then uh, Salman said, "I saw Abu Bakr and all those around him cry and wail, except Umar." <laughs> so everyone was touched by Fatima, even though like they transgressed against her. They were all touched, and they started crying. But Umar, no, Umar, Umar was a. They were he to them. He was a brute who could not cry. You know, he has his heart of stone. Uh, except Umar, Khadim al-Walid, and al-Mughira bin Shaba. They did not cry. Umar was saying, we have nothing to do with women and their opinions. So as she was crying, Umar is like this misogynist guy, uh, even like untouched by that. They brought Ali to Abu Bakr. And Ali was saying, by Allah, had my word been in my hand, then you know you would not have ever been able to get here. So Ali is telling uh, Abu Bakr this. By Allah, I do not blame myself for resisting you. And had I had 40 men, then I would have disbanded your coalition. So Ali is now threatening Abu uh, Bakr. And alas, uh, he, Ali then curses the people who supposedly let him down. Nonetheless, 
When Abu Bakr saw Ali, he yelled, Release him. Ali thus told him, O oh, Abu Bakr, how quickly have you rose against the Messenger of Allah? By what right and status have you called the people to your allegiance? Did you not pay allegiance to me in the past by Allah and the Messenger of Allah's command? So this is now Shi'i, uh, Shi'i theology 101 being inserted that Abu Bakr paid allegiance to Ali during the Prophet's life. Right? That, that's such a precarious narrative mm. you know but the 12ers take it for granted he inserts it into the into the script Qunfud, so now after this dialogue with abu bakr and uh, ali anhuma, and may allah bless them and all of our prophet's companions it says Qunfud, quote may allah curse him had struck fatima with a whip when she stood as a barrier between him and her husband omar had written to him saying Umar told, instructed Qunfud, if Fatima stands as an obstacle between you and him, then hit her. So Umar specifically told Qunfud to hit Fatima. Like it's not even like a, it's not that it was a collateral damage mm -hmm. or by mistake, you know, maybe she was caught in the middle of this imaginary conflict. No, no, no. There were instructions to beat Fatima. Qunfud had pushed her to seek ref. Qunfud pushed her to seek refuge behind the door. So she was hiding behind the door from Qunfud. Uh, and he squeezed her with the door and broke her rib, causing her to miscarry a fetus from her stomach. She remained bedridden until her death. But she's pregnant now. She's pregnant and she has a miscarriage and her rib broke. SubhanAllah, uh, all the details. Of course, there's historical evidence, even in 12 hour sources, to, to doubt this whole idea, by the way. But I'm just reading the account. I'm not going to like address every detail. May Allah bless her for the martyr she is. Okay. So that's one aspect I wanted to read. I promise you, I will not, you know, make it too long. I'm, I just need to read a few more, like a few more paragraphs. Al okay, so now Ali was uh, tied up. He's brought up to Abu Bakr. Uh, so now there's this like, it's like the crucifixion of Jesus, really. It's like there's a, uh, there's a mob, there's the elders, and there's the Roman authorities, and there's like just the dialogue happening now. Um, Al-Miqdad then stood up. Al-Maqdad, who's seen as a loyalist of Ali, to, but the, the Shia love him, right? So as Ali was uh, restrained, Al-Maqdad then stood up and said, Oh Ali, what do you command me to do? By Allah, if you were to command me, I would strike with my sword. And if you were to command me, I would halt. Ali told him, halt, O Maqdad. And remember the messenger of Allah's covenant and will to you. So again, there's like they're intentionally restraining themselves because of some covenant they had with the Prophet. After Miqdad stood up, Salman stood up and said, By the one in whose hand is my soul, and I know that I would repel had I known that I would repel an evil and bring pride to Allah's religion, I would have placed my sword and on my neck and struck with it by every step I take. Do you upri uprise against the messenger of Allah's brother? Legatee? Wasli, this is a, a theological term, you know, used by the Shia. Do you rise against the messenger of Allah's brother, Wasli, and successor in his ummah, and the father of his children? Anticipate the tribulation and be despondent of any of, be despondent of any ease. Okay, so Baghdad stood up, made a statement, sat down. Sarman stood up, made a statement, now he sits down. Next step, Abu, Abu Dhar then stood up and said, O Ummah, that is, that is confused after its prophet and forsaken due to his disobedience. Allah says, uh, Indeed, Allah chose Adam, Noah, the family of Abraham, and the family of Imran above all people of their time. They are descendants of another, 
and Allah is all hearing, all knowing. So this is in uh, Surah Al-Imran. He's quoting a verse that the Shia cite for polemic purposes. The verse actually has nothing about it, right? But again, this is Shi'i theology and the forger is coming from a Shi'i uh, perspective. He's embedding the adilla of the Shia in the text. Okay. So this is uh, one part I wanted to read. We're getting close to... to yeah. This is not all, by the way. I'm summarizing it for you. Wallahi, there's more paragraphs. Like it's, I said, it's five pages. So next paragraph. Omar stood up and told Abu Bakr as he was seated on the pulpit. So Omar talks to Abu Bakr now, as Abu Bakr was on the minbar. Omar says, what makes you sit on the pulpit while this one is at war and does not get up to play, pay allegiance to you? So Omar is like instigating right mm. he's he wants violence and shall you command that his neck be struck al hassan and al hussein so there's another another detail that's inserted mm. to invoke emotions al hassan and hussein were standing and when they heard omar's words they cried right like someone's talking about killing their dad these two boys so they start crying they're they're there now ali then hugged them and said do not cry for by allah they are unable to kill your father. Here's another very odd detail. Um Ayman, you know Um Ayman. Uh, I believe she's Abyssinian. She was uh, she's one of the women who like raised the prophet. She comes out of nowhere in this like uh, congregation in the masjid. Um Ayman comes. The woman who raised the prophet approached and said, "Oh Abu Bakr, how quickly have you exposed your envy and hypocrisy?" With Ayyadu Billah, of course. Omar then commanded that she be removed from the mosque. And he said, what have we with women? So again, this is misogynistic. Yeah, and it's, they're really trying to emphasize that Omar is like hates women. And he's just like angry and not tolerant whatsoever. But, but, the, but this was Abu Bakr this time, right? You said it was Abu Bakr who said that or was it Omar? No, no, it was Omar again. Oh, oh I, thought, I, Omar. Thought you, I thought you said Abu, Abu Bakr. Okay. Umar then commanded that she uh, be removed uh, from the mosque. And he said, what have we with women? Have we with this women? one liner that he keeps, they keep ascribing to him. Yeah, yeah. Then Burayd al-Aslami stood up and said, Oh, Umar, do you rise against the messenger of Allah's brother and the father of his children? Uh, and he now, and then I'm not going to read this because it's preposterous. They accuse Umar of in his lineage. Like, it's just so like weird. So not only is the grievance like theological, no, no, no. They berate Umar for being, you know, the, the it's qadif. It's pure qadif. They made qadif of his ancestors, yani, and they oh. think it's like a, a, yani, a clever thing. And then Umar, like, he's shocked that they know this. <sighs> so dramatic. Yeah. I, this is the final paragraph. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> uh, he then said, uh, and I believe this is Omar. He then said, Get up, O son of Abu Talib, and pay allegiance. Ali said, And what if I do not? He said, Then by Allah, we will strike your neck. Ali disputed with them for three times. And then he extended his hand without opening his palm. So Ali extended his hand without opening his palm. Abu Bakr then placed his hand on Ali's hand. So, like, it was like, uh, it was half, you know, it's not yeah. even like a real pledge. It was like, yeah. um, Abu Bakr then placed his hand on Ali's hand and he was content. So like Abu Bakr was like desperate, right? He was like, yeah. just put your hand, like, he rubbed his hand. He was content with that from him. Before paying allegiance and while the rope was tied around his neck, Ali called out, 
Oh, son of my mother, Yabna Um. He's, he's the same uh, call that Harun made when he was overpowered, you know, by Bani Israel. Oh, son of my mother, the people overpowered me and were about to kill me. The same line that Harun uses. And the, the, the thing goes on, right? The thing goes on. I can read for like a whole hour, Annie, from this book. Okay. This is just to show you we're talking about weak accounts being developed. This book makes the fabricated weak accounts look like they're like uh shining it makes them yeah. look good yeah. compared to them like they all pale pale in comparison to yeah, the, like the amount yeah. of dubiousness and, and embellishment yeah. that exists in these accounts and and it's a whole book like this it's I mean, the whole book is this embellished from start to finish and this is just one aspect of it and right abdullah would you say that this account that you just read out um you know is widely believed like by, by 12 or Shia today or or is there a difference of opinion amongst 12 or Shia okay they all agree on the, the core elements of the incident but some of them will be like no 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 the Saqifa is overdoing yeah. it we would pick this other embellished account rather than this or are they all just swallowing this one I see this is a very popular source Many of their uh, scholars and researchers write books defending it. Mm. No, no, no. It, yes, there do exist some who, who doubt its authenticity, but make no but maybe, mistake. But maybe the more academic Shias, but yeah. like the masses the level. Yeah, and on a, ma on a massive level, uh, it's a very popular text. They, they give eulogies and sermons mm. based on this text. Mm. They defend it. Some mm. of their key polemicists and scholars on YouTube, they defend it. Mm. Yeah, some of their scholars doubt, doubt this specific book's authenticity, but it's a very popular book. There is a movie based on this book. Like, mm. it's not a fringe book. It's not a fringe book. This is something that they believe. Even their, their clerics in the Western world here, I don't want to name names over here. They defend it. They give lectures on it, and they believe it's authentic. They believe this whole thing is authentic. Like not even the whole thing is authentic. The more reformist types that are like more fringe and marginalized in their community, yeah, they doubt this narrative. But those are like the exception. This is otherwise a very popular narrative, and we'll talk about this source. I, I'm gonna actually get to to uh, address some of your questions in more detail. So what what is the source? Like we know it's obviously fabricated. Just from the text, its composition, uh, the level of detail in it. This is a post fourth century text, 100% sure, 100% sure. This dialogue and the way I read it, 100% sure it's at least forged after the fourth century. It's more em embellished than the forged text from the second century. Like it's patently fallacious. Nonetheless, what is what is this book? So Kitab Sulaim, it's called Kitab Sulaim ibn Qais. And, and my, my book that I wrote is actually just an analysis of this tradition, of this, this whole book, and proving that it's, it's a later forgery. So Kitab Sulaim ibn Qais is a document that contains these gruesome accounts that I just read to you about the assault on Fatima and other stuff. It was allegedly authored by a student of Ali ibn Abi Talib. Right, so so th th this they actually claim it was written by a student of Ali. They, they claim it's the first book. They claim that what I just read to you is the first hadith book written in, in the history of Islam. Um, however, when you look at twelver bibliograph bibliographic sources, um, you see that references references to this text as a book only begin in the fourth century Hijri. Right, which is not a not a coincidence, of course. It's not uh, that's around the time when the book was composed. 
But nonetheless, in 12 or bibliog bibliographical sources, it's around the fourth century, it starts gaining traction. The Kitab Sulaim ibn Qais, people start referencing it and mentioning it as a book. It's also titled, uh, in, in some manuscripts, The Secrets of Al Muhammad, The Secrets of Muhammad's Household. Um, which which is telling Yanni about the nature of this book and its transmission. It's it's something that was hidden and concealed and and only revealed in a certain point in history because of the truth it has. Well, the reality of the matter is that it's it's what historians call a discovery narrative, and I'll leave that for another day. You know that concept. Nonetheless, with this book today, that the many Shia widely believe to be authentic. Most of its surviving copies are from the post-10th century Hijri. Very late copies. We actually don't have any manuscripts from anywhere near when it was supposedly authored. Nothing even from like the 3rd century Hijri or 4th century Hijri or 5th. They're almost all from like 300, 400 years ago, right? Which, which leaves a lot to be said. Yeah. Okay, so... As this book started gaining traction in, in 12er uh, scholarly circles in the 5th century and whatnot, around the time it started to become popular, some 12er scholars began expressing concerns with the text. So it's it's not even like it didn't start with uh, Sunni scholarship. Sunni scholarship didn't even know this book existed probably until like the last 100 years, right? So the infamous 12er theologian is a 12er scholar. His name is Al-Mufid. He died in the year 413. He said, this book, however, is not trusted, and most of it cannot be acted upon. Muddling and deception have occurred within its contents. The religious one must thus refrain from acting upon all that is in it, and he must not depend on most of it, nor should he rely on its transmitters. He must sleep to the scholars so that they may clarify to him the truth from the falsehood in it. Now, in Mufid, I don't consider his uh, criticism useful. He's coming from a 12-hour perspective. His, his objections to the book are fundamentally different than my objections and, and my issues with its historicity. But nonetheless, this is to demonstrate that even early 12-hour scholarly circles, they expressed concern. You know, there was initially not unanimous uh, con uh, consensus about this book. Another 12-hour sco uh, scholar from around this time, uh, Al Ibn Al-Ghadairi, concluded that the work was fabricated without a doubt. So there are 12-hour authorities arriving to this conclusion. Now, even though we can reproduce some 12er authorities, you know, doubting this book's authenticity, many today, all the 12er scholars who defend this book and the speakers and their academics, they find ways to circumvent this criticism, right? So this is not the be-all end-all of the discussion. Like they know this, they've moved past this criticism. And so my criticism of the book also does not pay much attention to this criticism because it's not that useful for my intents and purposes. Um, so this book, aside from what I had read to you, there are many themes of forgery in the text, and I'm not going to go through all of them. For those that are interested, they can you know, refer to my book. One, it's Isnads are atrocious. Mm. And, uh, you know, the discussion about the book's Isnad and, and polemics today between Sunnis and Shias or between Shias and Shias, it's very shallow. They will debate uh, the reliability of one transmitter, Aban ibn Abi Ayyash, from Sulaim ibn Qais. They, they say the transmitter from him is weak. And I do believe Aban is weak, but I don't think anything in this book has anything to do with Aban. It can't be traced to Aban. Like even though the supposed transmitter of this text is weak, the weakness actually is 
later, later. It's forged later after Aban's life, most of this text. So there's a lot of shallow approaches to the discussion in, in Shia circles and in, in between Sunnis and Shias. We, we get hyper-focused on something that's actually inconsequential. Yeah, Aban is weak. Yes, his weakness would be sufficient you know, to dispel this book's authenticity, but the book has nothing to do with Aban because the forger is later in the Isnad. The, for, the forgery of this text happened after Aban's death by like many decades. Okay, so that's one issue with this. And I have a detailed analysis of all of its isnads and how entangled they are and how problematic they are. One of the other themes of forgery in this text is what is known as a discovery narrative. To make a long story short, often in history, even in early pre-Islamic history, when a forger inserted inserts a forgery into, into the modern culture that he's in, people will understandably ask, where did this come from? And why did we not hear about this? That's a very reasonable question people ask when something that seems significant is introduced like a century or two after you know, the original event and whatnot. So the forgers come up with a story to explain how this uh, text came to be, where it was discovered, a dream. You know, someone came to me in a dream and told me there's tablets hidden over here, and I went there and I found the tablets and I found this truth. Like these, this is a very common theme in forgery in Christianity and in Hadith and in Islam, and that exists in this book. There's an entire story at the beginning if you read it, and I can't read it right now. It's too much info to put in one. It explains how such an obscure book came into existence and no one knew about it. Like That's the point of the story. So there's a story at the beginning of the book called, it's, it's properly described as a discovery narrative. And there's more about this detail in, in my book on this issue. Another thing in this text that's interesting, it has blatant historical errors, blatant historical errors. At several points, it, it quotes, for example, I mentioned this in my book, Abu Darda, the Sahabi. It presents Abu Darda at the Battle of Safin. But historically, Abu Darda died before the Battle of Safin, right? It uh, presents uh, Al-Fadl ibn al-Abbas in a congregation with a group of people with Muawiyah when he was the caliph, after Al-Hassan had conceded the, the governorship. But Al-Fadl died before that event in history, right? So these are like blatant historical errors, sloppy, you know, sloppy work. The forgery obviously was, was a bit incompetent in history. Uh, there's like a dialogue between Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr and Abu Bakr that happens with Abu Bakr on his deathbed. And it's a detailed dialogue and Abu Bakr is regretting and whatnot and whatnot. But like it's a detailed dialogue between two men. But historically, uh, when Abu Bakr died, Muhammad bin Abi Bakr was three years old, right? So there's a lot, a lot more to it. There's a lot of historical errors and there's more I mentioned in the book and I elaborate in detail and uh, we look at some of how the Twelvers like to respond to these things and how it's, it's uh, not worthwhile. Another theme of forgery in this book is the concept of anachronisms. So what is an anachronism? Anachronism is, is like a, it's a term from a certain era that is misused in the wrong time. And that sounds very convoluted and abstract. So what I mean is, what's a very modern day concept? Um, let's say the word uh, motor vehicle, a motor vehicle, right? It's a later invention that happened in history. Let's say I write a, a sirah book and I say, yeah, and then the, the Prophet ﷺ rode the motor vehicle and they drove from Mecca to Medina. That's a blatant anachronism. I'm misusing a term or, or an object or an idea and putting it in a time that it did not exist there. 
right? And this is one of the ways you can identify a, a forgery. A forger thinks he's clever and uses terminology and, and lexicon and, and jargon that is from his time era, but writes something from the prophet's life, you know, with, with incorporating that. You can tell it's a later forgery. So, so that exists in this book. There's a host of terms that are used that only emerged a century or two centuries after the Prophet's death. So that's another thing. I address it in detail in my book. There are falsifications. And this is something I will actually elaborate in detail shortly. So we'll skip this for now. And then also, uh, there's more, more to the text composition and multi-layeredness. And I will elaborate on this a bit more because these are, these are observations that I made that um, I I was not able to find in earlier discussions. So I'm, so what I mentioned earlier, these are things that were already mentioned in previous discussions about the book. People made note of them, these errors, these the snad issues, some of them were noted. I'm bringing some observations to the table that I think are, are novel and intriguing. So the book's multi-layeredness. Kitab Sulaim ibn Qais's multi-layeredness. What do I mean by this? Well, often when you look at how this book's authenticity is discussed in, in Shia sources, uh, in Shia scholarly circles, and in Sunnis who try to engage with Shia on their own terms, you have an Isnad, and the Sunnis are trying to pin the weakness on the weak transmitter at the, at the top of the Isnad, Aban ibn Abi Ayyash, who, as I said earlier, I don't believe has, has much to do with any of this text. So it's a primitive and shallow analysis of, of the Isnad. Why do I say that? Because when you attempt to pin the forgery of the entire book on one transmitter, that entails the assumption that it, it entails an assumption about the book's nature, that it was all composed at one time, mm. right? When you say uh, such and such tabi'i forged this book, you are implicitly assuming that this book is a monolith, right? And it was all composed at the same time. And uh, it was written by one person. That is an assumption. That that is an assumption that will prove to be likely inaccurate. You know, with this book, the reality of the matter is when you when you assess such a text, it may prove to be the case that multiple transmitters from different times have contributed to the development of the book. Right? It, forgeries and books that are forged aren't necessarily just you know one block one monolithic block. There, there could be additions and layers and developments that are added to a text uh, until it reaches its final form. And that is what we observe with uh, Kitab Sulaim. So, with Kitab Sulaim ibn Qais, we have the book, the, the latest edition, like the, the, the final uh, manifestation of the book today, which is what the 12 Shias rely on. And there are earlier references to Sulaim ibn Qais in 12 or hadith sources, yeah. right? So here uh, you see uh, Al-Kulayni, author of Al-Kafi, the famous uh, 12 or hadith book. You have As-Saffar, he's author of Basair al-Darajat, another famous 12 or hadith book. They do relate things back through this uh, Sulaim ibn Qais. So, so it's the same text supposedly being coded, right? And here you see that it's not diagram, you see Al-Kulayni. You could see my cursor, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You see Al-Kulayni here, Al-Saffar, these two men, they have their own Isnads back to the Isnad for Kitab Sulaim ibn Qais here, the pivot Isnad, right? So two different Isnads back to the pivot Isnad of the book. Yet, 
when we compare their traditions content, you know, in Kitab al-Kafi and Kitab Basar al-Darajat that are coding Kitab Sunayim, and the extant uh, uh, recension of the book that we have today, we see that there is noteworthy differences. So in the earlier references in, in Kitab al-Kafi of al-Kulayni and Basar al-Darajat of al-Saffar, we find this tradition from Sulaim ibn Qais saying, quoting uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib saying, Allah has purified us and shielded us from sin. And he made us witnesses unto his creation and his proof in his land. He made us with the Quran and he made the Quran with us. We do not depart from it, nor does it depart from us. So a very Shi'i idea, of course. And these early uh, 12 hadith collections coding Sulaim ibn Qais. But in the extant recension of Kitab Sulaim ibn Qais, uh, this passage exists there, but there are developments to it. Mm. So this quote from Ali exists, but there's additions. It quotes Ali saying, I, alongside my legacies after me, until the day of resurrection, are guided guiders who Allah had paired with himself and his prophet in many verses of the Quran. The, the red part are the additions that are added to the tradition. And then he says, like the tradition in Al-Kafi, it says, Allah has purified us and protected us from sin. And he made us witnesses unto his creation, his proof in his land. And then the later forger of Kitab Sulaim who developed it, inserted another sentence within the tradition, original tradition. And he made us the treasures of his knowledge, the minds of his wisdom, and the interpreters of his revelation. This is a, a sentence that's sandwiched in between the tradition. And then it says, he made us with the Quran and he made the Quran with us. We do not depart from it, nor does it depart from us. Another uh, addition, till we meet the Messenger of Allah at his pond, at Al-Hud. So, oh, so what is going clearly on? Clearly, the, the, the role of Ahlul Bayt is made explicitly clear in the Sulaim yeah. place version, which is not known here. So here he's talking about not just me, but you know, but also you know, yeah. my, my, my future, the future Ahlul Bayt, yeah. my legacies, those are going to inherit my legacy that will come after me, and we... You yeah. know, have the treasures of his knowledge, wisdom, and we are we have the role of interpreting the revelation. So yeah. that's it right there. Yeah. So as you can see, there is a, a layer added to the original tradition. There's an, this is a, another layer. The account of Sulaim is, is a developed layer that in, includes the kernel, includes an, mm. uh, the core of an earlier tradition, but it adds details. And the best example is this clause that is sandwiched in the middle. Mm. Both As-Safar and Al-Kulayni, when they are reporting through Sulaim ibn Qais, through different isnads, don't have this clause in the middle. Mm. The forger sandwiches and includes a new clause. I, I emphasize this because I know uh, 12 or polemicists will say, no, 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 uh, these, the beginning and the end, they're not additions. It's just that this tradition is only coding that part of the speech. Yeah. We well, we have this <laughs> clause in the middle that's inserted and that's not found in both independent sources. So, there's two layers at least now. We have a, a layer of Sulaim ibn Qais that exists in, in 12 hadith sources. And you have this more developed layer that's in the present day book, which is a, a later, you know, recension. Hmm. And this is the Arabic uh, quote, right? In Al-Kulayni, you see the wording and the Nasafar. Hmm. And here you see the additions from Kitab Sulaim. You know, it adds, إِنِّي أَنَا وَأَوْصِيَاءِ بَعْدِي إِلَى الْيَوْمِ إِلَى يَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ هُدَاتٌ مُهْتَدُونَ that's a first edition. 
And then you have the clause that was sandwiched into the tradition. It says that, you know, talking about how Allah made them, uh, talking about Ahl-Bayt, and then it adds this final clause right there. So this is just the Arabic uh, from the earlier tradition that I showed you. Another example. So, Ma'mar ibn Rashid is a Sunni figure from Basra. And uh, we have the famous book of Hadith Musannaf Abdul Razak that uh, Abdul Razak Sanani, his student, extensively quotes him. And in the Musannaf, there's like a book called the Jami'ah of Ma'mar, right? So Ma'mar is a sub-book within the Musannaf. And um, there is a tradition from Ma'mar uh, which quotes Sulaim ibn Qais, right? There was a very early small number of traditions ascribed to this figure called Sulaim ibn Qais and uh, what happened after that let's take a look so Ma'mar ibn Rashid who died 153 so this is a very early tradition it's earlier than all 12 hadith collections today Ma'mar ibn Rashid reported through Sulaim ibn Qais uh, that Umar once gave a sermon and Umar said the thing I fear the most for you after me is that an innocent man is taken and sawn just as a camel is slaughtered and his meat is exposed to fire just as camel's meat is. And it would be said, he's a disobeyer and he actually is not a disobeyer. It's talking about later fitan that will happen yeah. to, to believers. Ali, while under the pulpit, thus said, and when is that, O commander of the faithful? He calls Omar commander of the faithful. That's, that's an interesting theological uh, thing because the Shia don't believe this title is worthy of anyone except uh, Ali, mm. by the way. That's a side note. Ali, while under the pulpit, thus said, And what is that, O commander of the faithful? Or, when does the affliction become severe? Pride becomes manifest. Progeny is enslaved. Fitan strike them, just as a stone mill strikes the sediments in it, and as a fire strikes lumber. Omar said, And when is that, Ali? Ali said, when knowledge is sought for other than the faith, when knowledge is sought for other than its implementation, and when the dunya is sought through the actions of the Akhirah. Mm. Interesting tradition um, from Sulaim ibn Qais, from a Sunni source, very early Sunni source. Um, uh, what's interesting is the tradition is it's weak, of course. Sulaim is not known, and it's not as weak transmitter, Aban, and whatnot. It's a weak account, but nonetheless, it's an earlier account. Uh, that, that quotes this supposed source, Sulaim ibn Qais. And it slightly hints at Ali's uh, superior knowledge of some things about fitan. Because Umar asks Ali, when is that going to happen? When are these fitan going to happen? And Ali gives him the answer. Okay? Now, this account, very similar, exists in Kitab Sulaim and in Shia Hadith collections through Sulaim ibn Qais, but there's a difference. Al-Kulaini said, he reported through Sulaim ibn Qais, the commander of the faithful, Ali, once gave a sermon. So here it's Umar giving a sermon, right? Yeah. Now it's Ali giving a sermon. He praised Allah, extolled him, and then prayed for the Prophet. He then said, quotes him saying something, and then Ali says, I heard the messenger of Allah say, how shall you be when you are close with a fitna in which the young shall grow old, uh, grow and the old shall age? The believer, the people shall embark, embark upon it and make it a sunnah. Hence, if something in it has changed, it is said you have changed the sunnah then the affliction shall become severe the progeny will be enslaved so similar terminology yeah. in the earlier tradition 
And fitan will strike them just as a fire strikes lumber and as a stone mill strikes the sediments in it. They shall seek knowledge for other than religion, learn for other than its implementation, and pursue, pursue the dunya with the deeds of the akhirah. So this later 12-er redaction yeah. of, of Sulaim's tradition, Umar is not on the pulpit. It's Ali giving a sermon. Yeah. No dialogue between Umar and Ali. Yeah. And not only that, Ali is coding it as a prophetic tradition. So that's another development. So you're now getting a, and this similar account exists in, in Kitab Sulaim. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I actually don't quote me on that, but this is from a Shia Hadith collection. It's to demonstrate that uh, you see the layers, how, how you have developments and, and, and uh, appropriation of, of certain texts. And so my point here is that there are at least three layers to Kitab Sulaim. The first layer is the earliest layer which is exemplified in Na'mar ibn Rashid's tradition, right? This is the first layer, uh, of, at least the first layer we have today, of a, of a small amount of traditions that are ascribed to this figure called Sulaim ibn Qais, very benign traditions, uh, generally benign, nothing that significant. And then there is a second layer added to Kitab Sulaim ibn Qais, which is this later Shi'i development, which which constitutes all traditions in 12-er hadith collections, like Al-Kafi, like uh, Ibn Babawi, uh, Al-Saffar, all these 12-er hadith authors, when they quote Sulaim ibn Qais, they are effectively quoting the second layer, right? So this is the second layer that I'm showing mm -hmm. here on the left. Mm -hmm. It's it's a development from the first layer, but it's a second uh, layer that's found in the 12-er hadith sources, right? And then there is the third layer, which is the present-day copy of Kitab Sunni ibn Qais. It has more additions and developments to the second layer that is found in Shia Hadith when they quote Sunni ibn Qais. Mm. So this is the so the text that I read to you, right? The gruesome account of of Fatima's murder. Mm. That's the third layer. That's the third layer of the text, yeah. and you don't have any reference to this event in early twelver Hadith collections. Mm. Uh, you know through Sunni ibn Qais. There's no report in Al-Kafi or Basair al-Darajat or any of these sources that talk about an assault on Fatima reported through Sulaim ibn Qais. Not at all. Even though they do have references to similar events in their own isnad through other sources, nothing through Sulaim ibn Qais about this reported event. And in fact... A slight I, historical question, Abdullah. Um, mm. When did Kitab Sulaim ibn Qais become embraced by the twelve or Shia, did it take some time to? I know this is a historical question. Mm. You, may not, you may not have necessarily yeah. uh, delved into it. But I'm just out of curiosity. Like, yeah, um, uh, you know, was it accepted by twelve or Shia early on and mass disseminated yeah. in acceptance, or you know, or did it take some time? It did come out of nowhere, right? Good question. Good question. Um, I, I just want to finish my earlier point, and I'll sure, get to go it. Go ahead. Yeah. So this third layer that has the detailed account of the murder and whatnot, you don't find any traces of it in the Shia, earlier Shia hadith collections that quote the second layer, right? Mm -hmm. The third layer has the account of the assault and attack and bro broken rib and miscarriage, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. No trace of it in Shia sources through Kitab Sulaim. Mm -hmm. In fact, when you gather the early Shia references, like uh, in Kafi and other Shia hadith books, like quote Sulaim ibn Qais, and you gather all these references, the impression of this text that they're quoting that you get is that it's not a book about Saqifah. 
It's not a book about assault on Ali or Fatima. What the early Shi'i collections quote in the second layer appears to be a book or a bundle of traditions about the superior knowledge and religious authority of Ahlul Bayt. Yeah. Right? That's what all these traditions revolve around. Nothing about Saqifah, nothing about that. That is the third layer. So I, I actually concluded from an internal analysis and external analysis of the traditions related to this topic that this idea of, of uh, Fatima being attacked and assaulted and murdered actually did not exist in the earliest recensions of Kitab Sunan ibn Qais. Mm. This is actually something added by this later forger, the same forger who inserted, you know, these uh, these red uh, mm. clauses into the earlier traditions. Mm. This person or a group of people, they are the ones who also added uh, these accounts of uh, Fatima being attacked. Mm. And and to demonstrate this, uh, my I friend... Know, I, I know you showed a couple of sample examples for us here, yeah. but... Would you say that there's more to show? Oh, totally. Oh. Way more. Way more. I mean, theologically, it's... it's so the third layer thing is like yeah. rampant throughout the book. Oh, yeah. There's very few parts where, you know, the, the report in Al-Kafi is very similar to the one in Kitab Sulaiman and Qais today. But often there's developments, there's clauses inserted. Uh, it's polemics being rewritten as history, mm -hmm. right? So it's 12-er polemics, 12-er theological arguments and the verses and the hadith that they cite to make their case rewritten and embedded in like a narrative about uh, history uh, and whatnot. So I talked to you about uh, the, the account of the assault being uh, likely actually a third layer that was not even existent in the earlier accounts of the books. Well, you know, my friend and the researcher Farid, who I strongly, you know, recommend people to read, you know, he has great writings on Shiism. He actually analyzed the manuscripts and he noticed in, in different uh, families of manuscripts of this book, uh, one of the earliest manuscripts does not have the account of the attack on Fatima, right? So they're all later manuscripts, but some of them don't even mention this uh, this account, which, which uh, for me, uh, it complements my conclusion about uh, my internal conclusion about the book after analyzing it and analyzing 12 or Shia hadith sources. I concluded independently of the manuscripts, mm. I'm not a manuscript editor. I have not studied the manuscripts in too much detail. But uh, Farid, he's great with manuscripts. He noticed that this narrative is absent in some some of the manuscripts. Mm. So that complements my uh, conclusion on this. Mm. Mm. Excellent. Um, okay. Now to, to address your question, um, this text was controversial from the start in the early scholarly uh, circles. Oh, For even within Shia circles, you mean? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so Al-Mufid, who I quoted earlier, Ibn al-Ghadairi, mm. they cast doubts and aspersions on the text. Mm. But there were other, other Shi'i scholars a bit before them who, who praised the book and, and considered it one of the most uh, reliable usul, which is uh, Nu'mani. Mm. So the Shi'i 12-er scholar and Nu'mani has a book uh, called Al-Ghaybah. It's a theological text, and he quotes some excerpts from Kitab Sulaim, and he describes it as one of the uh, largest and you know earliest usul of the Shia. So he he has a good uh, perception of it. I talk about that in my book. Now, it seems later in history, the book just got more popular and more popular, like it got normalized. Yeah, uh, yeah today um, you have the reformist. Type of Shia uh, scholars that are like that, that like like the Adnan Ibrahim's of the Shia world, <laughs> they will reject it. 
right? They all reject it. They're reformists and they don't take it all for granted. You do have some Shi'i maraji' popular maraji' like Sistani, who considers this book weak due to certain positions he takes on al-Mirrijal and whatnot. Okay, so there are scholars who who consider this book weak, but still think it's narrative. It's true. Like they have other reasons to believe in the narrative and whatnot. But many, many Shia, I don't want this to, to people to misconstrue this as a fringe book. No, it's not mm. a fringe book. Uh. It's a very popular book. Many of them consider it the first Hadith book written by a student of Ali. Many of their clerics here in the West, many of their polemics, many of their most uh, famous apologists in Saudi Arabia, in Kuwait, in uh, Iraq. They make videos defending this book. They write books defending it. It's a very popular book. They recite it in their sermons. There's like compilations of them singing th stuff from this book. It is a very popular book. And of course, it's not unanimously agreed upon, but it's still very popular and widely believed by many Shias today. So, Here's another interesting observation. This will be one of our last technical observations uh, with respect to this text. So as I said earlier, there was some forger of this book in like the fourth century Hijri who took the second layer of the book that exists in 12 Hadith sources and developed it right into the third layer. Something I noticed that there is this uh, clause in, in Kitab Sulaim, a passage I made takhrij of the hadith. Like it's it's about an encounter between Ali and the Prophet. I analyzed it in depth. I realized it's actually not a popular tradition in 12 sources. It, it doesn't exist in the 12 hadith collections through Sulaim ibn Qais. And it's in fact it's very sparsely coded. The entire event in Hadith, Shia Hadith. It's it's not it's not a popular event in Shia Hadith collections. And then I looked, I actually realized it's more popular in Sunni Hadith collections. It exists in a bunch of Sunni Hadith collections. Looking into it a bit more, I I noticed something striking. The author, Kitab Sunim ibn Qais, quotes the passage almost verbatim as the variant found in Abdullah ibn Ahmad's uh, variant of the account. So Abdullah, the son of Ahmad bin Hanbal, in one of his zawaid, one of his traditions in uh, Fadail al-Sahaba, the book, he quotes this tradition. And what is in Kitab Sunim ibn Qais? Almost verbatim, almost verbatim quote. And that's very strange. That's very strange. Because usually different isnads through different accounts, like it has to be like different structure, the word choice, everything, the order. No, no, it's almost identical. If you like, you read like Abdullah bin Ahmad and Kitab Sulaim, almost identical. Like Abdullah bin Ahmad says, Kuntu amshi ma'an Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam fi ba'du turuq al-Madina. Kitab Sulaim, kuntu amshi ma'an Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam fi ba'du al-Madina. Abdullah bin Ahmad says, فَأَتَيْنَا عَلَىٰ حَدِيقَةٍ فَقُلْتْ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ مَا أَحْسَنَ هَذِي الْحَدِيقَةِ كتاب سليم فَأَتَيْنَا عَلَىٰ حَدِيقَةٍ فَقُلْتُ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ مَا أَحْسَنَ هَا مِنْ حَدِيقَةٍ And then there's another source, Muslim of Abiy Ala also has parallels uh, in wording even between that and Kitab Sulaim. Uh, and then Abdullah bin Ahmad says, uh, the Prophet said, مَا قَالَ مَا أَحْسَنَ هَا وَلَكَ فِي الْجَنَّةِ أَحْسَنَ مِنْهَا Right? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.